Welcome to the May 5th, 2023 special meeting of the San Francisco Ethics Commission. Today's meeting is being live cablecast on SFGov TV and streamlined live online on sfgovtv.org slash ethics live. For public comment, members of the public may attend in person or may participate by phone or the WebEx platform as explained in our agenda document. Um, Mr. Clerk, can you please explain how the remote public comment uh, will be handled today? Thank you, Madam Chair. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each member of the public will be allowed three minutes to speak. For those attending in person, opportunities to speak during the public comment period will be made available here in room 416 City Hall. For those attending remotely, public comment period can also be provided via phone call by calling 1-415-415. 655-0001. Again, the phone number is 1-415-655-0001. Access code is 2596-188-2432. Again, access code 2596-188-2432. Followed by the pound sign, then press pound again to join as an attendee. When your item of interest comes up, press star three to raise your hand to be added to the public comment line. Please stand by. Public comment is also available via the WebEx client application. Use the WebEx link on the agenda to connect and press the raise hand button to be added to the public comment line. For detailed instructions on how to interact with a telephone system or WebEx client, please refer to the public comment section on the agenda document for this meeting. Public comment may also be submitted in writing and will be shared with the Commission after this meeting has concluded and will be included as part of the official meeting file. Written comment should be sent to ethics.commission at sfgov.org. Once again, written comments should be sent to ethics.commission at sfgov.org. Members of the public who attend Commission meetings, including remote attendants, are also expe expected to behave responsibly and respectfully. During public comment, please address your comments to the Commission as a whole and not to individual members. Persons who engage in name-calling, shouting, interruptions, or other distracting behavior may be excluded from participation. The following behaviors or activities are strictly prohibited during remote participation. Applause or vocal expression of support or opposition, signs regardless of content or message, profanity, threats of physical aggression. The prohibition of signs does not apply to clothing, which includes signage pinned to clothing, messages displayed on clothing, pins, hats, or buttons. The provision supplements rules and policies adopted by City Hall, the Sheriff's Office, or the Board of Supervisors related to decorum, prohibited conduct or activities, noise, etc., and is not meant to be exhaustive. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, and now I call the meeting to order. Roll call, please. Commissioners, please verbally indicate your presence by saying aye after your name is called. Commissioner Flores Fang. Aye. Commissioner Finlev. Aye. Chair Lee. Present. Commissioner Romano. Aye. With four members present and accounted for, you have a quorum. Thank you. Agenda item number two. Public comment on matters not appearing on today's agenda. Um, I see no commenters on site. Can you check on the remote?
Madam Chair, we're going to check to see if there are any callers in the queue. Please stand by. Madam Chair, we have two callers. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. Good morning. My name is Ellen Lee Zhao, E-L-L-E-N-L-E-E-Z-H-O-U. I have been a public health worker for San Francisco Health Department. I worked there for more than 10 years. I represent the government employees in San Francisco. I have been living here in San Francisco for more than 37 years. I care about San Francisco. Yes, I am the Ellen that I ran for San Francisco mayor in 2018 and 2019. Yes, your ethic commission has been retaliating me after I ran for mayor. Ethic commission is the most uneth unethical department that I know of. I have been coming to ethic commission many years. The last time I spoke to you at the commission was in April 14, 2023. I spoke to you about San Francisco electoral officials. Some management leaders has been running a communism government that we now learn San Francisco has been controlled by deep state. The people within our government are enemies for us. Most public electoral officials were paid and bought into the office to purposely impose Agenda 21, now changed to Agenda 2030, which another word for one world other government. I reported to you last month about pandemic COVID-19, its plan, and the crime against humanity by forcing COVID-19 vaccinations for San Franciscans. We now learn more and more people who accept the vaccination dead, dying, sick. But San Francisco still have the communism policy, no vaccination, no job, until this day. I was retaliated reporting facts, data to government leaders, lie about this pandemic to the public. I was terminated by my public health department in September 2022 after I report the true crime against humanity. As of today, May 5th, 2023, we, the unvaccinated government employees, still have many active lawsuits against the mayor, health officials, and some city leaders lying to the public by forcing vaccination illegally, violate people's medical choice, religious freedom, and constitutional rights. Your now three minutes has we expired. see more and more people are dying. Please stand by as we go to caller number two. Welcome caller, your three minutes begins now. So commissioners, it has been some time since I have participated in your deliberations. I'm asking you, commissioners, 
strengthen the Ethics Commission so that y'all can address quality of life issues on every level in the city and county of San Francisco, we now see abject corruption. Our Sunshine Task Force is dysfunctional. Our Ethics Commission is floating. Our controller's office knows about the corruption, but kicks the can down the street. The director who used to be the ethics commission director has left. We the people do not know what is happening, who has been, who has replaced her. We need the Ethics Commission that was created by the people but is not serving the constituents of San Francisco. We have now departments going directly to the Board of Supervisors, introducing resolutions on behalf payments. remember that somebody from the Board of Supervisors came to muddy the waters at the Ethics Commission. So I'm asking you all kindly to address quality of life issues on every level in the city and county of San Francisco. We do not have quality of life issues. Crime is on the increase. Businesses like Nordstrom, the Whole Foods, many other businesses, large businesses, are living this city. A new ethics commission have to ponder and connect the dots. Thank you very much. Madam Chair, there's no further callers in the queue. Okay, thank you. Public comment to agenda item number two is now closed. Now I call. Yes. Public. Good morning. Go. Hold on, sir. If you just give sure. me a moment, I will. Your three minutes begins. I won't take now. three minutes. I wasn't fully prepared to come today. My name is Thierry Phil. Uh, I've got a French accent, it's, it's an artist name. So recently what I've been doing is start talking to the uh, supervisors, it's true, on different commissions, and I thought, yes, ethics is key. For uh, I'm on a sort of mission, I would call that, you know, we need to uh, work together, I believe. The situation is extremely complicated. I don't know what parts um, you play in this. I think we are playing with fire for the future of humanity. It's absolutely clear. My words here will be, don't let ethics become superficial because that's what is going on, basically, I think. It's pretty clear. Because you will lose your ability to reach what should be your reason for being like everybody else. It's happiness because 
You can't reach happiness superficially. You have to use this emotional energy towards, it's an aspiration, towards beauty, to reach happiness, artificial intelligence, or any sort of fixed thing that these uh, concepts, including ethics, can't achieve that because it becomes mechan mechanical. It doesn't work. I think that's it for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if there's no more. Madam Chair, it looks like there's no further public comment. Okay, public comment is closed for agenda number two. Now I call consent calendar items three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. As noted on the agenda, there will be no separate discussions on the consent calendar item unless a request is made by a commission member or a member of the public in attendance, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item. If any commissioners ask to discuss the item, that item will be taken up following action on the consent calendar items on the regular calendar for discussion and action. Does any commissioners wish to discuss any item on the consent calendar? I see none. Uh, let's open up for public comment, please. Madam Chair, it looks like we have one phone call in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. Good morning again. My name is Ellen Li Zhao. I spoke earlier today. I was cut off before my statement finished. As of today, May 5th, 2023, excuse me, excuse government me. employees excuse me. still have many active lawsuits. This is for the consent calendar item number three, four, five, six, seven, and eight, nine. This is public comment for that item. One lost the mind, they terminated her. She ran for supervisor, you remember? What do we think? This public comment is specifically for the consent calendar. Uh, is this on? Good morning, Commissioners, Deputy City Attorney Brad Russi. Yes, Commissioner, the um, uh, public commenter should limit their comments to addressing the item that the Commission is considering, which is the consent calendar. Thank you. Do we have... All right, we're going to continue with your public comment. As of today, May 5th, 2023, there's many unvaccinated government employees still have many active lawsuits. Excuse me, against if, you, the if mayor, this comment is not specifically to the agenda, I don't even need to cut you off. Any All other right. callers? It looks like we have no further calls in the queue. Okay. Thank you. Um, since there's no other uh, public comment, uh, do I have a motion to adopt the consent calendar? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. So moved. Second? Second. Uh, okay. Roll call, please. On the motion to adopt, uh, actually, uh, let's try a new new method. If there's no objection, can we just have a 
Do we need to do individual roll calls? There's no objection to the motion. Commissioner, on the, uh, do you need to take a roll call vote or you can do without objection? Um, I, I don't know whether the bylaws address this. During, during COVID, you needed to do roll call, but okay, roll since call. you're all here present, I think you probably can, can do a unanimous consent if that's your desire. Do I have a unanimous consent for this item? Do for me. Unfortunately not. Um, okay, let's do roll call. Yeah. Okay, let's do roll call. Okay. On the motion to adopt the consent calendar, Commissioner Flores Fang. Commissioner Finlove? Aye. Chair Lee? Aye. Commissioner Romano? Uh, no. With three votes in the affirmative and one vote opposed, the motion is approved. Sorry. Okay, no, no problem. We have three votes. <laughs> I now call agenda item number 10, which is a proposed closed session item to discuss personnel matter. Today's agenda includes a proposed closed session item and item number 10 for public employee appointment executive director. This item has been scheduled for the commission's discussion and possible action. For purposes of this item today, there are four steps involved. First, on item 10A, we will receive public comment on all matters pertaining to agenda item 10, including whether to meet in closed session. Second, we will then vote on whether to meet in closed session under California Government Code section 54957.6 and Sunshine Ordinance section 67.10 to discuss the public employee appointment. This will be an action item as noted in item 10B. Third, if a closed session is held, the commission will initiate that closed session meeting. Fourth, pursuant to Browns Act section 54957.1 and Sunshine Ordinance section 67.12. And as shown under agenda item, we will discuss and vote on the motion regarding whether or not to disclose any action taken or discussions held in closed session regarding the public employee appointment. Does any commissioners have any questions about today's process? I see none. Uh, I would like to ask our city attorney, Rossi, is there anything you wish to add about the commission's closed session process? No, you may proceed. I see no, thank you. Now let's proceed to public comment on specifically agenda item number 10. Madam Chair, we are checking to see if there are callers in the queue, and we have two callers standing by. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. The commissioners, you're going to go into closed session, and you know that we really need a good ethics director. The, the last three ethics directors tried their best. And I know that y'all are going to make every effort to choose a good director. But please make sure that whoever this director is has sufficient staff. Without a staff, or without various staffing, well-equipped with the latest technology, software, we cannot serve the city and county of San Francisco. So we do need a director. But the director is linked to good staffing. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
We have one more caller in the queue. Welcome caller, your three minutes begins now. Good morning again. My name is Ellen Lee Zhao. Yes, I spoke to you this morning. Yes, I got cut off by you, the lawlessness, criminals running the government. I work for the city of government. I was terminated. Excuse me, Ms. Zhao, are you coming by, specifically on this agenda item number 10? Yes, you not allow me to speak in and finish my statement. You are no different than a criminal. This is a public statement. This is a public ethic commission. I am here to ask you today, because this is a closed session, and it's about government employee, government hiring, public taxpayer business. I pay for property tax. I pay for sales tax. I am paying for the salary of public government employee. Because this is a closed session, we are not allowed to participate. And do not cut me off. I told you already, you are no different than a criminal by cutting me off. I am here to ask you, all public officials and those in charge, to come back to righteousness, to re-evaluate our failed city policy in all departments. Because you have a closed session, do not allow public opinion to be in section. That means you're doing illegal business against we, the people government. The government was set up to evaluate by the people, not the government to set up by the government. You are running a dictatorship government. Instead, working on the society problems, about dying homeless, about out-of-control crimes, suffering business, about companies leaving San Francisco. The Ethic Commission has been working with so many departments, closed behind doors, do not allow the public to know the truth, nothing but the truth. I am here to report it to you, to the Ethic Commission, that you have discriminated against those who do not agree with you, public opinion. Just like you did this morning, you shut me off after I spoke less than a minute, when I am having three minutes. Where's my civil right? Where's my freedom of speech under God-given right? Where is my taxpayer money? Go. When all this behind a policy comment is not publicly. Yes, I run for San Francisco government, mayor, representing the people. What have you done to me? You have been fired me by after I spoke the truth to you at the commission and the mayor and board of supervisors. Now you close behind the door about employment. Your three minutes has expired. Madam Chair, it looks like there's no further callers in the queue. Okay, uh, public comment uh, for agenda item number 10 is closed. Do I now entertain a motion uh, to proceed um, whether to meet in closed session under California Government Code Section 549.57.6 and Sunshine Ordinance Section 67.10E to discuss the public employee appointment. So moved. Second. Okay. Um, A motion has been made and seconded. Okay. I will now call the roll. We have unanimous consent. We Aye. do. So let us proceed to...
closed session. And I just want to make the announcement that because of the closed session item, we will uh, reconvene in open session around 1.45 or 2 o'clock. So we thank our members of the public for your patience and continued engagement. Let's go to closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
Good evening, everyone, and welcome to San Francisco's 19th annual AAPI Heritage Month celebration. My name is Grace Horikiri, one of the co-chairs of this year's celebration, along with my mother, brother from another mother, um, <laughs> other co-chair, Al Perez. <laughs> yes, give him a hand. We want to also acknowledge our third co-chair, Thomas Lee, who unfortunately could not be here with us this evening. And then have another round of applause for the Halal Kayulu dance troupe for opening tonight's program and celebration with the Wahine Auna Hula and Dane Hula. So one more time. So they are based in South San Francisco under master teacher Kawika. The group's primary focus is on cultural traditions associated with the Hawaiian Islands. Good evening, my name is Al Perez. I am so excited about this year's celebration because in my mind, I kept thinking that it's much about everything Asian, everywhere, all at once, just like the movie. <laughs> well, with the three amazing organizations that we're honoring tonight, doesn't it feel like a little bit like an Oscar night? Well, we do hope that you will enjoy this evening's program. This celebration event would not be possible without the generous support and dedication of the many people and organizations we ha who have come together to make this tonight's event a success. We are very grateful to our sponsors, publicity partners, the members of the APA Heritage Celebration Committee, and all the volunteers this evening. Between here and City Hall, we have almost 150 volunteers working to make sure that everyone has a good time and an enjoyable experience. Please give them all a round of applause. And we also want to take this time to recognize our celebration partners, the Asian Art Museum, the San Francisco Public Library, and the Center for Asian American Media for an amazing range of art and cultural programs they are offering throughout the month of May. So please do check the celebration guide that you can, is found at apasf.org for a list of all the programs. And now, it gives me great pleasure to turn over tonight's program to our mistress of ceremonies. Please give a warm welcome to Priya David Clemens, host of Program KQED Newsroom, one of the longest running programs that focus on news and public policies. Priya? Thank you so much. Hi, what an amazing night, everybody. Hello, one more round of applause for our celebration co-chairs. It's great to have you all here. Let's all stand for the national anthem. stripes and bright stars through the perilous fights or the ramparts we watched were so 
Amazing. Please be seated. So you just heard that amazing voice from 21-year-old recording artist Zayonce Brown. She's been singing since she was six years old. Zayonce is of half Filipino and half black heritage. She already has recorded three original Tagalog songs with a record label in the Philippines, and she was recently on the front cover of the magazine Afro-Inspired. We do have amazing talents in our community. I've been so honored to um, be a part of this community over the last several years. I came here in 2005 as a cub reporter for KTVU, and I do work for KQED now. I've lived all over the nation, all over the world, but San Francisco, the Bay Area, is the home of my heart, and I feel um, really, truly honored to get to be here tonight and celebrate our heritage together and the celebration of that and the embrace that the city provides as well. So 45 years ago, let's talk about how we got here. 45 years ago, President Jimmy Carter signed into law a resolution declaring one week in the month of May as Asian Pacific American Heritage Week. In 1990, the one-week celebration was expanded to the entire month of May, and then in 1992, legislation was signed into law making Asian Pacific American Heritage Month in May a permanent celebration in the United States. Yeah, we can applaud that. Then in 2005, here in San Francisco, Mayor Gavin Newsom enthusiastically supported the idea of an annual official celebration that would include all Asian and Pacific Islander communities. Here in San Francisco, if you didn't know, more than one-third of the population is of Asian American and Pacific Islander descent. There are a lot of us. We continue to show the nation how to properly celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Our city's celebrations, which include a public awareness campaign, you may have seen some of the images out front and on the plaza, these are the collective efforts of the members of the APA Heritage Celebration Committee in partnership with the APA Heritage Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to securing the sponsorship and resources to support this celebration. And at this time, please welcome Claudine Chang. She is the president of the APA Heritage Foundation and coordinator of this community celebration. She is here to give her greetings on behalf of the APA Heritage Celebration Team. Claudine. Thank you, Priya. Thank you. Oops, this is all yours. Thank you, Priya. Happy AAPI Heritage Month, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this celebration this evening. An event like this takes more than a village. And this the API community, there are no less of villages, as we know, and I really want to, on behalf of the API Heritage Foundation, thank all the diverse ethnic groups for coming together, putting together not only this evening's celebration, but events throughout the month. And for all the elected officials, department has numerous members of the council corps, our sponsors, community partners, who are with us here today, your support and presence mean a lot to us. Thank you so much. And as Priya mentioned, this year marks the 45th anniversary of the signing of the law, creating a special time in the month of May for the celebration of AAPI culture and heritage. Some of us have been thinking 45 years 
what changes has been there? Well, honestly, it is kind of disappointing at times because when we think about anti-Asian hate, fighting for equity, breaking the glass ceiling, none of, none of these issues are new. Oftentimes, it's more of the same, and it's very frustrating. However, through the pandemic, I think we realize that when organizations and communities pull together, we can make a difference. The pandemic shows us that a lot of, there are actually a lot of silver linings that you know, we can see. And when organizations pull together, diverse communities coming together, talking about how do we stand together with each other, that gives us hope. That gives us hope, and that's what inspired this year's theme, celebration theme, strengthening the fabric of our community. We are not just talking about the API community, but the community of our city, the community of our country, uh, the uh, fabric that in, be inclusive of everyone. This past weekend, we kicked off the API Heritage Month celebration a couple of times, once in the Samoan community and actually also in Japantown. The event at the Japantown is titled Our, Com Our Community, Our Pride. Our community, our pride, that's exactly how we feel about the API community. And that's exactly why every year so many of us put, you know, really spend countless hours, many, many months, because we want to have a month that we are so proud of. And I can't think, thank enough again our amazing co-chairs, El Perez, our own amazing Grace and Thomas Lee. Without them, I mean, we really cannot be we really cannot make this. And I just want to show our appreciation to them again. I don't know where they are, um, probably backstage somewhere. We all come from different places, even within the API community, different cultures, different backgrounds. We are all different colors, forms, and shapes that makes up the fabric. Like on a quilt, you see so many different patches, but we are part of the whole. We may be different, but we are part of the whole. And that's what we want to see, and we hope that over the years, we we'll continue to work with, together to make this a more perfect fabric, to make this a more perfect and beautiful quilt. And now, it is my honor to introduce our mayor, who times and times again has demonstrated her commitment to embracing diversity. Someone who inspired us actually, together with the Human Rights Commission and the San Francisco Public Library, to put together, coordinate the first ever joint celebration of Lunar New Year and Black History Month. Someone who constantly reminds us that we should look beyond our differences and focus on what we have in common. Please, warm, please warmly welcome San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Thank you. thank you, Claudine, and thank you to the Asian Pacific Islander Foundation for the work that you continue to do to really strengthen those ties year-round. 
Um, I got to say, being here today, uh, I'm really excited, and it does take me back to my days in high school, not too long ago. Uh, when I attended Galileo High School, and even in middle school and elementary school, what I appreciate most about my experience is we celebrated our diversity. Many of us came from a lot of different back backgrounds, and during the assemblies that we held during Lunar New Year and African American History Month, we had a chance to learn about one another's culture. And yes, we all hung out with one another, but at the end of the day, what's so important is to learn and to celebrate and to recognize that we are a strong community because we, of course, represent our various culture, our communities, our families, and what we grew up with, but we become even stronger when we're able to build bridges and come together and to learn about one another and to respect, appreciate, and uplift one another. And I must say that the work that the Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month has done is not only celebrate each of the diverse communities within the Asian community, but more importantly, including other communities and making sure geographically that we're touching on just how amazing and diverse San Francisco is in a way that oftentimes is not on full display. And I want to really appreciate and know that there are so many elected leaders here, but I want to take this opportunity to thank the Asian Art Museum, to thank the San Francisco Public Library, and I see Michael Lambert, and to thank CampFest for the work that you all do to bring us together to make sure that for the past 19 years now, we celebrate the month of May as a way to highlight our diverse Asian community in San Francisco. I know that it's been very difficult over the past couple of years, especially during the pandemic, and so many people have tried to divide us and tear us apart as a city and to single out the Asian community in particular. And the reason why something like that doesn't work because of the foundation of who we are and what we know we represent as a city. How when challenging times occur, we come together and we stand up for one another. And one of the things that I saw that was so amazing in the city is we didn't just throw up our hands or, or point the finger. We basically rallied, we came together, members of the Board of Supervisors and our city leadership rallied for support and resources to go to various organizations where we collaborated and escort programs for seniors. The African-American community and the Asian community through CYC and the Street Violence Intervention Program came together and became the ambassadors of the community to look out for our seniors. It was an amazing time and I know that it was a challenging time as well. What we have seen in terms of the reduction in the number of hate crimes in the city that have occurred have been encouraging, but we know it's still not enough. But I am grateful that we have real partners in our law enforcement agencies. In particular, we have our police chief, Bill Scott, working hand in hand with our district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, to ensure that accountability is no longer lacking in the city and county of San Francisco. So the work that we know we need to continue around safety, around protecting our history and our culture, of course, acknowledging the past and the challenges that exist there, but also how do we move forward? How do we come together? And events like this and throughout the month of May that will occur will highlight the significance of this diverse community. But I do also want to take an opportunity to recognize that San Francisco as a global city 
we bring together people from all over the world. I know that we have ambassadors and council generals, but in most cases, they all want to be located right here in San Francisco because it's such an amazing city. And I want to acknowledge and thank the various council generals who we worked hand in hand with from China, from Indonesia, from Japan, Mongolia, the Philippines, Singapore, and Korea. Thank you all so much for being here and thank you for the work that you continue to do with our office to ensure that communities from all over the globe are supported. Now, San Francisco will have another opportunity to be on the national stage. And in fact, some of you have already heard that APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperative, is going to be hosted here in the city and county of San Francisco in November of this year. So what does that mean? Well, we have had no other significant international event in San Francisco since 1945 when the UN was established in our city. So what does that mean? The heads of states that from all over the world, CEOs from everywhere, yes, street closures and other challenges, so please be patient. But the fact is San Francisco will be on a world stage and to really highlight our Asian community will be at the front and center of what we will do to demonstrate how amazing this city is. And I'm looking forward to working with each and every one of you to ensure that San Francisco is recognized. Last but not least, I wanna just acknowledge the number of organizations that are being honored throughout APA Heritage Month in San Francisco. Uh, of course, uh, one, of this, one such organization um, is one that I've had personal working relationship with, the Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California, who has been around for 50 years working in and for community, and not just to protect and support one of the oldest um, and most significant Japan towns in San Francisco, but also supporting the surrounding community, the relationship between the African-American and the Japanese community has really a deep history and deep roots in the neighborhood, or also known as roots in the neighborhood. There's also the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation. Uh, for the past 40 years, they have been preserving the important history of the immigrant community, and they tell the stories so that those stories are shared and not forgotten. The Asian Pacific Fund, supporting community through philanthropic work for the past 30 years. All of these organizations play a significant role in the Asian diaspora to continue to uplift and to support community. I want to say congratulations to all of you and thank you for the work that you have done and will continue to do on behalf of the Asian community. And last but not least, again, I want to express my true appreciation to Claudine Chang, who along with the various volunteers. I mean, if you walk through the door today, you saw a host of people who are volunteering and working to ensure the success of not only tonight's event, but also many of the other events that will occur throughout San Francisco and various parts of San Francisco to uplift and celebrate Asian culture in the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you for your work and enjoy the show. Thank you, Mayor Breed, for the real talk about the challenges our community faces and how the city is working to address them. 
And thank you to Claudine for your leadership and your vision in organizing tonight's event. It has been 18 years that you've been doing this. We also want to say a thank you to the mayor's office staff and all of the city officials here for your presence and your continued support. I, I'm getting a quick note. <laughs> I don't know about this. Okay. We have a proclamation signing that is taking place. Mayor, as it explains it, so every year this is the day that when the mayor of the city signs a proclamation uh, for API month in the city. So Mayor Britt and the mayor would like to invite members of the council call to join on stage. And then after that picture, we would like to invite the elected families to join as well. Yeah, sure. Okay. Cheryl, you better come up.
All right, a big thank you again to Claudine Chang and Mayor Breed. Tonight's celebration wouldn't be possible without the support and commitment of our generous business and community sponsors. At this time, I'd like to recognize this year's major sponsors, starting with the Heritage Champion sponsors. Amazon, US Bank, Wells Fargo, thank you so much. Our Heritage Captain Sponsor, Uber. Our Heritage Partner Sponsors, Chinese Hospital and CCHP Health Plan. Cruise, Japan Center Garage Corporation, Kaiser Permanente, Sterling Bank and Trust, Golden State Warriors, Waymo and Withers Worldwide. And our Heritage Friends Sponsors, A Common One Connectivity, Cathay Bank, Comcast, Portsmouth Plaza Garage Corporation, San Francisco Association of Realtors, and the YMCA of San Francisco. We are also very grateful to our community sponsors. You can see them in your program in the interest of time, but let's give that huge round of applause you've been waiting to give right now to all of our sponsors this evening. Coming up next, we have a very special performance. For those of you who have attended this awards event in the past, you know that each year the plan is to feature a different and unique cultural performance from Asia and the Pacific. This year we had planned to have two amazing performances showcasing the cultures of Thailand, but unfortunately the performers of the first group, the Thai Cultural Center of Fremont, are under the weather and can't join us. We are delighted to present an amazing singer who's among the top of the charts in Thailand and has performed for the Queen of Thailand herself. Let's give a warm welcome to Tukta and her performing group. Tukta will be singing for you a new song titled Love is Love. ในใจก้าวผ่านเมียงของประคองกันก้าวผ่าน
คนพีดวนด่านทุกด่านของหามใบบอตั้งใจต่อตั้งมีตาหักเขาสองให้ที่มองนาระเอียดใจเลยเจ้ารักของสองเราอย่าเอาเขาเขาใส่ใจรักก็อนคือรักไหนแม่ใครจะมองแต่ต่างนานาเหนื่อนเหตุของผิดวัฒนาธรรมเพื่อนว่าช่างเขาเถิดนะความรักนั้นมาจากใจจะเพศในในเราก็คนเหมือนเหมือนกันจะแบ่งชนชั้นกันไปทำไมหมดยุคสมัยจะปิดกันละเด้เรื่องใจไม่ต้องอายที่เรารักกันฉันร้องยืนเพียงเดินจับมือให้โลกรับรู้ว่ารักเกิดจากความNow we get to begin the APA Heritage Awards presentation. Every year, the APA Heritage Foundation honors organizations that are involved with art, culture, or the preservation of AAPI history for having achieved significant milestones in their mission and existence. To present the first award this year, I'd like to invite San Francisco Supervisor Connie Chan to the stage. Connie is the chair of the Budget Committee. Supervisor Chan is the only Asian American member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and the community is thankful for her dedication to public service. We would also like to invite Dennis Yee, chair of the Awards Committee, to join in the presentation. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Priya. Good evening. Uh, this is an, my honor to join you this evening uh, to really be part of the celebration. Uh, while I am grateful and to be representing uh, our AAPI community among 11 members of the Board of Supervisors, I definitely look forward to seeing more representation. We deserve it. With that, I also want to recognize our board president, Aaron Peskin, and along with my colleague, Supervisor Rafael Mendelman, among here with us today. Our AAPI community should know that we most definitely have the support um, from our board of supervisors, and uh, we are going to continue to stand united 
uh, together, uh, especially uh, what we have been through in the last two years. It is the reason why it is also my privilege on behalf of APA Heritage Foundation today to present this award. Um, founded in 1993, Asian Pacific Fund has been one of the champions and a community foundation among uh, many, but really has been providing most a lot of support uh, for our AAPI community, not just in San Francisco, but really throughout the Bay Area. We're grateful for their support. Uh, with their support that we see so many can continue to emerge from this pandemic and to be successful. So with that, it is my honor to present this uh, award to them today. Thank you everyone and thank you so much to the Asian Pacific American Heritage Foundation for this recognition of this milestone achievement for Asian Pacific Fund. My name is Carolyn Wang Kong um, and I'm excited to accept the award on, on behalf of the staff and our community and our board. Um, I wanted to just share that you know when the Asian Pacific Fund was founded in 1993, 30 years ago, the Bay Area only consisted of 15% of our population was Asian American. Today it's 27%. And since we represent the full Bay Area, counties like Santa Clara and Alameda, actually their highest population is Asian American and Pacific Islander. That's right. Um, but there are counties in our Bay Area where AAPIs also make up the highest number of individuals living in poverty. That includes right here in San Francisco. The mission of the Asian Pacific Fund is to strengthen our community by increasing philanthropy and strengthening the nonprofit organizations that are our community safety net. I'm so proud to say that over the past 30 years, we've given out, given out hundreds of grants, 450 grants to nonprofit organizations, many of which over the past few years, just because it's been so difficult in our community and we have continued to be overlooked. We've also offered over 40 different capacity building initiatives over our tenure, and we have built up a network that continues to grow, more than 80 different nonprofits. I'm so proud to say that as the only Asian Pacific American focused community foundation here in the Bay Area, we've been here through thick and thin, and we're gonna continue to be. We look forward to continuing to build our strength, to lead with courage, and to create our belonging together. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Now I'd like to invite David, San Francisco City Attorney David Chu to present our next award. 
David has had an illustrious career in public service on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the California State Assembly, and now the first Asian American city attorney in San Francisco. Please welcome David Chu. Come on over. Hi. Good evening. I am so honored to join you tonight for the 19th annual Asian American Academy Awards event here. And uh, in case you're wondering, every single person in this room, you are on the A-list for the Asian American capital of our country, and that is here in San Francisco. It's my honor to help recognize an organization that for 40 years has reflected and embodied our Asian American community. My guess is there are many people in this room who have a grandparent or a great-grandparent who went through Angel Island. Angel Island, as we all know, is not just a spot on a map. It's not just a beautiful view of the bay. It was a former detention center where over a half a million immigrants from over 80 countries once passed through. And I think many folks know, if you've ever been there, that there are inscriptions in the barracks where they used to interrogate and detain immigrants who came through. Inscriptions in Chinese, in Japanese, in Korean, in South Asian languages that told the tribulations, the trials, but the dreams of generations of San Franciscans and Californians and Americans. I want to take a moment and just read one stanza from one of those poems. Waves big as mountains often astonish this traveler. With laws harsh as tigers, I had a taste of all the barbarities. Do not forget this day when you land ashore. Push yourself ahead and do not be lazy or idle. As our city's first Asian American city attorney, I often think about that history, particularly at this time, when during this time, we are re-experiencing the history of anti-Asian hate. During this time, there are leaders that are demonizing immigrants from Asian countries. During this time, there are some who suggest that we should not be relearning the history of our past. Asian Island Station Foundation is an organization that is teaching us about our history and our culture, reminding us of where we came and providing that vision of where we should be. So with that, it is my honor to invite up to the stage the executive director of the Angel Island Foundation. If you could please join up, Edward. And I'd also like to join onto the stage JJ Lara, who is the board chair of APA Heritage Foundation. Congratulations, thank you. Thank you so much, David. My name is Ed Taphorn, and I've had the honor and privilege of serving as the executive director for the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation for the past three years. I'm joined here tonight by our senior manager of operations and exhibits, Russell Nauman, as well as our most recent board president, Buck G, a man who needs no introduction. Buck, thank you so many, so much for your years of leadership and championing of Angel Island. Can I just see a show of hands? How many of you have visited Angel Island since January of last year? All right, yeah, got you there, right? My hope is that by next May, every single hand in this room is raised. Because if you identify as Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, or as someone who's an immigrant or of immigrant heritage, or someone who stands in allyship or solidarity with our communities, Angel Island is a required pilgrimage. 
Because you see, for all immigrants, their descendants and their families, Angel Island's a living landmark, a landmark that symbolizes diverse experiences of detention, of racism, and of exclusion, but also of hope and determination. For the past 40 years, the foundation has worked to preserve the site, as well as to elevate its histories and its stories, to promote learning, and also to celebrate the new beginnings and immigrant contributions that make this country so strong. And through all of these efforts, what we seek to do is to create a future that is more inclusive and more equitable, one that embodies a nation where immigrants make our nation better. So congratulations to our fellow awardees, and on behalf of all of the current and former board and staff of the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation, thank you so much to the APA Heritage Foundation for this recognition and for this award. Thank you. Thank you, City Attorney David Chu. All right. Next up, the third and final presentation of the APA Heritage Awards. Please welcome San Francisco Sheriff Paul Miyamoto. Sheriff Miyamoto has dedicated his career to public safety. He's the first Asian-American sheriff in San Francisco and currently one of only two Asian-American elective sheriffs in the country. Please welcome Sheriff Miyamoto. Thank you, Priya, and thank you, everyone. This has been an amazing evening so far, and it's only going to keep getting better as we move along. I do want to say... Uh, when I was asked to introduce the next group, the next award recipient, uh, it's extremely special to me because uh, the Japanese Cultural and Community Center uh, is a part of my personal community here in San Francisco. I live five minutes away from Japantown, uh, and being of Japanese-American and Chinese-American descent, uh, I've had the opportunity to bridge cultures, to experience many things, but the proximity and the closeness and uh, the support that the Japanese-American community gives my mother now and in her golden years um, is much appreciated. So I am very happy and honored to be here to present this award in particular on the 50th anniversary of the Japanese Cultural and Community Center. I was hopeful that it would be a little older than me, but unfortunately it is not. <laughs> but 50 is an amazing achievement and the longevity it represents in our community uh, is one that should not be uh, uh, ignored. Since 1973, it's amazing that this organization has provided cultural and educational programs, both to preserve and promote our culture and historical heritage, uh, something all of these organizations have done. Um, it enhances the understanding and appreciation of our community, and as I mentioned with my own mother, it supports the members of the community and provide spaces for them to 
come together and be a part of our experiences. Today, the center offers an array of programs for a diverse audience of all ages, which includes both traditional and contemporary Japanese cultural arts, activities for children and youth, exhibits and forums, senior wellness programs, performing arts, and social and recreational activities. And I do want to mention one more thing before I bring executive board member Yuka Walton up here to accept the award. Um, being an elected official, an elected law enforcement official and representing our community, uh, and when you hear the words like only supervisor on the board, first city attorney, first sheriff, uh, we are only just opening the door and taking a role which we hope will be followed by the youth and the members of the following generations that are supported by these groups, by the Asian Pacific Fund, by Angel Island uh, Immigration Station Foundation, representing our history, and by the Japanese Cultural and Community Center. So without further ado, Yuka Walton. Good evening, everyone. My name is Yuka Walton, and I'm an executive board member with the Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California. It's quite a mouthful, but it's fondly known as the center in SF's Japantown. Uh, we would like to start by thanking Claudine Chang and the chairs of tonight's celebration. Thomas, Alan, Grace, thank you for bringing us here together. It feels so nice to celebrate our diverse AAPI community and just to be joyful, right? Like, this is so nice to be all together. The Center is celebrating our 50th anniversary this year, and the theme of our celebration is celebrating generations. So as we celebrate, we're thinking about our Issei, the first generation of Japanese people who came to this country, started a new life, and built the community that we know today to be Japantown. And we also think a lot about our Nisei, our second generation, who have been so resilient as they have faced so many injustices and overcome so many barriers. Our Nisei have been forcibly removed, not just once, but twice. Uh, the first time uh, when they were forcibly removed and unjustly incarcerated during World War II, and the second time when they were forcibly removed uh, by the Redevelopment Agency, all in the name of urban renewal. And so the Nisei, their dream, as they were watching their homes and their businesses be demolished, their dream was to own and operate a community center in SF's Japantown one where we could celebrate our Japanese cultural heritage, one where we could have families and friends gather, and one where we could run programming for all the kids and the elderly in our community. So the fact that we're here tonight receiving this award, celebrating our 50th anniversary, I think is beyond the wildest dreams of our founders. It feels so good to be able to say we're still here and we have a bright future ahead of us one in which we'll celebrate our Japanese traditions and also uh, celebrate our diverse Japantown community. So once again, I'd like to say thank you so much. We feel so honored to receive this award. Thank you.
Okay, let's give another round of applause for all our honorees tonight. And thank you for your patience with me over some moving parts. Before we end tonight's program with the grand finale, I have a few important announcements to make. After the event ends, you're all invited to a festive reception at City Hall. When you leave the theater, our volunteers will be handing out raffle passports, which you can use to enter the reception, and later on, you can convert that into raffle tickets for some great prizes. And for everyone who does not have a wristband, please make sure to enter City Hall through the entrance on Polk Street, where you are required to go through the security checkpoint. Once you're at City Hall, please take time to enjoy a sampling of Asian Pacific cuisine, specialty cocktails, cultural performances, and visit the community exhibit tables. And at City Hall, you can also get your own logo pin and t-shirts. Last but not least, we want to thank all the raffle prize donors for their generosity and support for this year's celebration. A round of applause, please. And before we close tonight's performance with the grand finale, I'd like to thank the APA Heritage Foundation for giving me an opportunity to host this year's Heritage Awards and celebration. I look forward to next year's celebration. This is a big one coming up. Mark your calendars with the date, May 1st, 2024. It will be a fabulous 20th anniversary celebration. Yeah. And now for the grand finale of this evening's performance, we have for you a special dance performed by Rong de Bollywood. It is choreographed by Manpreet Kamal, followed by the cultural procession, which will be introduced by longtime committee member Rose Chung. Please enjoy. साहेबान कदरदान मेहरबान दिल थाम के बैठिए क्योंकि अब आपके सामने तशरीफ ला रही हैं आगरा की अजीम फनकारा मलिका हुस्न नूर नजर मोहतरमा मोहिनी Breaking news, I'm gonna talk about. 
Thank you very much to Manpreet Komal for energizing with a colorful, vibrant fabric to strengthen our spirit. The cultural procession has been a tradition with our um, celebration for since 2008. And um, I just enjoy doing it so much. We have such a wonderful group waiting to come in. And back by popular demand, we have Christine Adias, the vocalist extraordinaire. All right. Well, what are we waiting on? Let's get this party started.
When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see Oh, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand, stand by me. So darling, darling, stand by me. Oh, stand by me. Oh, stand. Stand by me. Stand by me. VIPs to come up to take a picture. I'm going to ask the kids to step forward so that we have the VIPs stand right behind you. Step forward a little bit.
Okay, elected officials, stand between the kids, okay? And we can stand behind the kids because they're a little bit shorter. Okay, come to this side. There's plenty of space. Okay, step right here, please. Step. Thank you. Step right here. Hi. Okay. Stand right here. Kids, stand in front. Can I have the little ones crouch in front right here? Come on, come on. We just kneel down here. Thank you. Can I? Someone let me know if we, it looks good. Where's our photographers? I can't tell we're too close. Does that look good? Frank, just yell out. How's it going? Is it balanced? Could maybe have some people come to this side? Come on. Because that side's thicker than this side. <laughs> Are we good? Make a comment. If not, we're ready to take a picture in right now. Everyone look up to Frank Jang's camera. Look up right now, look up for the next 30 seconds. Thank you. Woo, thank you everyone. And before we proceed to City Hall, we're gonna party, right? Let me, Christina Diaz is gonna get us in the party mood. Where's um, our music?
My name is David Chu. I'm honored to be the first Asian-American city attorney in the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco, welcome to the official kickoff of AAPI Heritage Month. I often say that our city, we are the spiritual, the cultural, the social center of the Asian American community in our country. And this is not just because of our history, the fact that Asian immigrants started here in our very city. It's not just because of the fact that we have the oldest Chinatown in the United States, one of three Japantowns in the United States, Little Saigon, the Filipino Cultural Heritage District, and so many communities that reflect the diaspora of our AAPI community. It's because of all of you, all of you who represent this amazing diversity, who are leading in so many ways, and I just want to thank you for that. We have so much to celebrate this year, and I'm not just talking about Academy Awards. I'm talking about the progress that we were making after a very challenging several years as we are bringing our community back after COVID in the wake of anti-Asian hate as we move things forward. And each of you, again, has been a part of that. I also want to say that San Francisco this year, uh, there is so much that we are doing to continue to anchor our status as the Asian American capital. And that includes the fact that this fall in November, San Francisco is going to be the host city to APEC, which is the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Leadership Summit, where we will be hosting literally heads of states from countries to our east, representing where our communities came from. And it's going to be an incredible moment to showcase who we are. Um, I know today we're going to be acknowledging a lot of folks, and shortly we're going to be hearing from our great mayor. We're going to be hearing from our city administrator. I want to take a moment and acknowledge our Asian American sheriff. I want to acknowledge our, uh, the head of our Asian Arts Museum, and I'm looking for other department heads. I know the head of our library is here, Michael Lambert, and I'm sure I'm missing others, but I'm sure the mayor will catch up with me uh, once, I, uh, once I complete my comments. But let me also say this. This event this month would not happen but for tremendous community partners. And they are listed on the boards we have here. But we have many, many amazing community partners. I know we're going to acknowledge several of them for their decades of leadership. We have many amazing community sponsors. Um, but we only have one woman who has been at the heart of this event for the better part of 19 years since she was, I think, eight years old. Uh, <laughs> This is an event that came about because the then head of National Organization of Chinese Americans approached then Mayor Gavin Newsom and said it is high time for San Francisco to put ourselves on the map in acknowledging AAPI Heritage Month. And Claudine Cheng, you've been at the heart of this. You have worked so hard for almost 20 years of doing this. Thank you so much on behalf of the city for everything you do. And without further ado, Claudine Cheng. Time, time does fly, 19 years, hard to believe, but, but really this is a labor of love for everybody who is involved every year to um, put together this celebration. 
it's amazing. 19th years, we really do not have, people ask me, some of the sponsors, about oh, what is your operating budget, this and that. We really do not have an office. We really do not have staff. All we have are our volunteers and our committee, and I really cannot thank is enough uh, our committees and especially at this time I'd like to uh, introduce our three celebration co-chairs. Unfortunately Thomas Lee is uh, out of town for work uh, but El Perez, Entertainment Commissioner El Perez, one of our celebration co-chairs and amazing Grace, Grace Horikiri, celebration co-chairs. And a special shout out to Dennis Yee who is heading up our awards committee. Dennis, thank you so much for everything. So our city attorneys talk about the, the rough and tough times that the API community has gone through in the last few years. So we feel that when we think about a theme, we just feel that we really need to take the opportunity to, to continue uh, to strengthen ourselves. And that's the, so to make it very simple, our theme this year is strengthening the fabric of our community. Looking around, we might all be coming from different places. We have very different, may have different culture, history, heritage, but you know, we are one API community and we hope that throughout uh, the month of May, that's what all the program is going to tell this story of our community. Um, thanks to, uh, again, to our co-chair Thomas Lee, who is very, very creative. Uh, this year, uh, this is the, our event, this is our commemorative poster, and it's really a very intricate design of different parts of the fabrics, as you can see putting the different parts of the fabrics together, uh, how the community is going to connect and be one whenever we can. Um, on our website now, which is just updated again by Thomas, uh, is the celebration guide. The celebration guide includes a list of all the art and cultural events that are happening, the key events that we are aware of, that is happening in San Francisco during the whole month of May. I want to really appreciate our celebration partners, the Asian Art Museum, the Camp Fest, uh, San Francisco Public Library. I mean, throughout the month of May, that's amazing. So many events um, uh, that for, for everybody, for all generations to enjoy. We are not just celebrating our month. We are also, I think in May, we are also cele celebrating Small Business Week. So we are also this year having a joint celebration of Small Business Week. I think El Perez have taken uh, leadership of that. We are going to have this fun event called Child Fun uh, <laughs> in district, in his district, District 11, is it? Yeah, uh, and, and to collaborate and, and bring up the small, bring out, uh, help, help out our small business in that area with Small Business Week and the, all the restaurants. So there are many ways throughout the city that we are, con every year we are trying to think about new ideas. How do we expand this collaboration? How we can spread uh, the community love around? So there are really plenty going on and we look forward to seeing many of you next Wednesday at our APA Heritage Awards and uh, and reception, um, but without, uh, but we really cannot do all of this without you know your the city's support. And since 2005, we are so happy to have all the mayor's strong support and presence every year when we celebrate. And it, it is a very important message that we are supported, both in the bottom by our communities and all the way you know the whole spectrum. So um, I'd like to welcome Mayor, Lee, mayor Breed to our. Ouch. I think Mayor Lee wanted to know, wanted us all to know that he's still with us in some <laughs> capacity or another. Uh, I take that as a sign and a good one for really the spirit of 
the Asian community in the city and county of San Francisco, uh, one of resilience and one of excitement in these times after dealing with some very challenging times. What I appreciate most about this opportunity to celebrate the month of May as Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month is we have an opportunity to really talk about not only the accomplishments and the things that we have achieved in the arts and in philanthropy and community, but we have an opportunity to really reflect on the past and to also look back at what this community has gone through and emerged even stronger than it has ever been as a united front against those challenges. And so this is really an opportunity to reflect because last year, I don't know if there were a lot of smiles on people's faces in light of all the anti-Asian hate and the attacks on many of our Asian seniors in particular. There was a lot of sadness and a lot of frustration and coming together and working together and making investments and changes to policies and with our new DA accountability has really changed what is happening in these communities all over San Francisco. No, we are not where we need to be, but we have come a long way and we are seeing those numbers decline thanks to really an emergence of our public safety officials, including our own Paul Miyamoto, who has really been at the forefront of working with Chief Bill Scott and working with District Attorney Brooke Jenkins to make sure that accountability is at the forefront of the work that we do because San Francisco, as a compassionate and second chance city, we believe in reforms, we believe in second chances, and we believe in the importance of the work to deal with the challenges that exist. But we also truly believe that when those lines are crossed, people need to be held accountable. And that is also a part of a safe community. I also want to take the opportunity to really recognize the amazing organizations who really stepped up the um, uh, CYC with their various ambassador programs and, and, and also self-help for the elderly with the work that they've done for the senior escort program. And so many people and volunteers really came together in our city and it has been a really beautiful thing. I was just out in Chinatown last week uh, really celebrating community coming together and the festivities and all the kids and the excitement uh, for the spring and the year of the rabbit and I was on Clement Street celebrating there in the Cherry Blossom Festival the past couple of weeks and I thought to myself nothing makes San Francisco come alive more than these activities and festivals and celebrations in many of our commercial corridors and the Asian community as a whole is at the heart of all of those activities. So I want to just really reflect on that and how far we've come as a city and the excitement that will spring out as a result of APA Heritage Month in San Francisco, thanks to the great leadership of Claudine and Thomas and Al Perez and so many people who spend a lot of time volunteering to help make this really an incredible opportunity for people to explore different parts of the city, including our folks from Visitation Valley, our Pacific Islander community who really, 
has been at the forefront of helping to make sure that part of San Francisco is not forgotten. So today we are grateful to our Asian Art Museum. Thank you, Jay, for being here, our partners with the San Francisco Public Library, and you have a fierce advocate in Michael Lambert, and also CAMFest we know is going to be a big thing, but they also are an, a partner for Asian Pacific and Asian and Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. It's a mouthful. Um, but today we also take a moment to really uh, honor a number of organizations, the 30, 40, and 50 years of existence. And I don't know if you did that on purpose, Claudine, but um, the Asian Pacific Fund for supporting community through philanthropy and making sure those investments get made in Asian organizations. The Asian Island, I mean the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation for 40 years of uh, protecting the stories and the history and the heritage of the Asian community in the Bay Area. The Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California, one that is absolutely my favorite because of the work that they have done with me in partnership over the years. Even before I was a supervisor on the Board of Supervisors, the collaboration that took place between this center and the African American Art and Culture Complex, those cross-cultural relationship building opportunities were always central in my life in the Western Edition community. And so they are celebrating 50 years. So a wide spectrum of organizations doing extraordinary things, along with events, activities, films, you name it. It's all a part of what's happening during the Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month for the month of May in San Francisco. And I am so grateful and excited. I want to really thank and acknowledge all of our sponsors for investing in our Asian community. I know U.S. Bank and Amazon and Wells Fargo are some of the top sponsors here, making sure that the resources are available so that community can have support. And I see Valley Brown from Grants for the Arts. Thank you for making sure that we continue to invest in our arts organizations, our parades, our festivals, and our exciting events of San Francisco. And I'm going to just um, leave you with this. Um, APEC is going to be extraordinary in San Francisco. And what is so amazing about what it represents, David Chu touched upon it a little bit, but this is going to be an international event of a magnitude proportion. And when I say that, no other event on an international scale has existed in San Francisco since 1945 when the United Nations was created right here in our city. And so we will have heads of states we will have CEOs and folks and companies. This will be an opportunity to showcase San Francisco like never before. And the Asian community will be on full display. We know that there are so many people who come from Asia and different parts of Asia. And, and we know that there is a very close-knit relationship for community, but also for business. And so that will be on full display during November when APEC will descend upon San Francisco like never before. We will be on center stage and this community will be at the forefront of so many events and activities that we will do to make it clear what is great about San Francisco, to make it clear all the wonderful things that are happening in our city. No one is gonna define the narrative of our city. We are the writers 
of what happens in this city and our history and also our awesomeness as it relates to the work that we do to bring community together. So what we're gonna do in our celebration, we're gonna show them what San Francisco is all about during the month of May, during APEC, and year round as we continue to build relationships and change San Francisco for the better, working with each and every one of you. Thank you all so much for being here to kick off Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the city and county of San Francisco. Thank you, Mayor London Breed. <laughs> um, uh, so our next speaker, um, our city administrator, Carmen Chu. Carmen is one of, was one of our honorees uh, in earlier years and obviously have an illustrious uh, public service career through City Hall. So many positions as part of supervisors, assessor, recorder, and now city administrator. So thank you for being here, Carmen. Hello. Well, you really can't follow the mayor, so I'm not sure why I got this wonderful responsibility. But I really uh, wanted to be here to celebrate with you and to tell you how excited I am to celebrate with my daughter. She's finally vaccinated. She's four years old. We're going to get out there. Uh, and I want her to see what our city is all about and to be able to experience all the wonderful um, parts of our, of our city. But I really want to take a minute to acknowledge the mayor and her championship of all of the wonderful things that happen in our city. There are so many things that happen. The things that you see might be the headlines that grace our news. It might be the information that is kind of top of mind when it comes to conversations in the public sphere. But by and large, sometimes the support that you get from leadership comes in ways that are small and quiet but effective. I don't know if you know, I know she just mentioned uh, Valley and, and the Grants for the Arts program, but this mayor understood just how important it was to not only revitalize our economy and make sure that we're activating our spaces in our city, but the fact that every time we have these parades, these festivals, these cultural events, there are an opportunity to uplift the communities that we value so much in our city. I don't know if you know, but in our last budget, she doubled the amount of investment that we made in parades and festivals. These are not things that ever get covered in press because maybe people don't pay attention to those small things, but they are the things that make a difference, and I just really want to acknowledge her support. If anybody saw her at the Cherry Blossom Festival, you know, just recently, I was on that float with her, oh my goodness. She is no better champion. She was dancing, enjoying it, and I'm like, how am I gonna dance next to the mayor? <laughs> that is not, <laughs> that is not uh, something that, that um, is definitely in my forte. But she really is a champion. I wanna just thank the mayor for all of her support for these events, uh, because it truly is important. But I have the wonderful opportunity today to be able to acknowledge the 30, 40, and 50-year-old contributions of these organizations. So it's not only about getting the voice of our API community out there, but it's also about recognition, recognition of the people and the organizations who have been steadfast in our community, supporting our community, and helping us weather all of the storms. So this time I want to be able to recognize the people and ask you to stand so we can give you a big round of applause uh, for their contributions. Representing the Asian Pacific Fund, Carolyn Wang Kong, who is the President and Executive Director. 
Asian Pacific Fund is celebrating their 30th anniversary. They have been doing so much to not only be a community foundation that helps to support our organizations across the Bay Area, but really has been focused on making sure that they were, we're continuing to make the investments in our API community funds all across the board. So I want to thank you for being here representing the organization, and we look forward to recognizing your contributions. The Asian Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation, represented by Darlene Chu Bryant. Celebrating their 40th year, uh, as you know, the Angel Island Immigration Station Foundation is devoted to preserving the former U.S. Immigration Station at Angel Island and promote the history of the exclusion, detention, hope, and determination of all immigrants who arrive there. So I want to thank you, Darlene, for all of your great work and continue to keep our history alive. Thank you. And finally, the Japanese Cultural and Community Center of Northern California. Scott Okamoto, are you there? There you are. And Lori Matoba, as well, the deputy director, is celebrating 50 years in our city. The center preserves and promotes Japanese-American culture and historical heritage, enhances understanding and appreciation among people in the United States and Japan, and promotes a multi-service community space to serve the community. So for those organizations who've had an immense impact on San Francisco, thank you so much, and we look forward to continuing to celebrate with you throughout the month. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. I see that uh, our Sheriff Paul Miyamoto is also here. Would you like to say a few words? Thank you. I, I just want to say one thing, that um, the theme this year is strengthening the fabric of our community. And if I could draw your attention to my pants, <laughs> I just happen to be wearing denim today. Today is World Denim Day in recognition of the support that we in public safety and in, in all the different positions in our community, we give to women, victims of sexual assault, victims uh, who have to suffer sometimes through biases and prejudices on uh, being victims. And we want to show that support for them by wearing denim jeans. And I don't want to go into too much detail other than to say something happened in Italy where someone was blamed for being assaulted because of the clothing that she wore. And that's why legislatures in that country the next day wore denim in support of the victim, and we do, we do that now in recognition of that. So I think it's very timely because we're strengthening the fabric of our community. Denim is a very strong fabric, and it also represents how we, how we support each other worldwide on things. And that just brings us all together over one issue, we're coming together now in celebration, but I also want to make sure we always remember community is there to support each other through good times and bad. And as we've all gone through the experiences of AAPI hate, as we've all gone through the experiences of, of the challenges that we have in public safety right now, I just want to remind everyone, we rely on you uh, to make sure that we're in this together to keep people safe. So please keep that in mind. You mentioned APEC. Uh, more than a few people have mentioned APEC, and every time I hear that, as a public safety member, we're challenged with keeping everyone safe, and we'll need your help to do that. So let's start with the celebration and roll up our sleeves for the good work to come. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, as the mayor have um, mentioned and, and previous speakers, we, this, we are so fortunate that this 
celebration every year was really support, well supported uh, by many organizations, the, our community sponsors, all the nonprofits, you know, to uh, our business sponsors. Um, we, uh, so we are really thankful, and today we want to specifically acknowledge our heritage champion um, sponsors because they really have been amazing you know, to, to want to support uh, how we strengthen the fabric of our community. Um, I want to uh, first acknowledge Wells Fargo because in 2005 when we started, in 2005 when we never have done any celebration before, uh, Wells Fargo was there to uh, support us and through the years and now returning, we are so excited. So I want to uh, invite Lorenzo Cordova from Wells Fargo, um, he's the Vice President of Philanthropy and Community Impact, to so say a few words. Good morning, everyone. I'm Lorenzo Cordova on the Philanthropy and Community Impact team at Wells Fargo, and we're thrilled to be here this morning to kick off and celebrate the start of AAPI Heritage Month here in San Francisco. There's no denying that the, the San Francisco is a great city it is today because of the contributions of our AAPI community, past and present. Wells Fargo, like Claudine mentioned, has been a steadfast partner of our AAPI community. In fact, it was one of the first California companies to service our Chinese customers in their native language. Just last year, through a partnership with the Chinese Cultural Center of San Francisco, we unveiled a community mural where we depicted 12 AAPI community heroes. So as you engage in AAPI-related activities, I invite you to visit the corner of Jackson and Grant Avenue to view this mural. This year, one of the many ways that we're celebrating AAPI Heritage Month is through the sponsorship of the Heritage Awards, at which we will be celebrating these three organizations that work day in and day out to equip our AAPI community with the resources and tools that our AAPI community needs to succeed. I want to thank Claudine Chang for her steadfast leadership and dedication to execute this event, to our Mayor, Mayor London Breed, for her commitment to celebrating and amplifying the voices of all the communities that make this city a special place to call home. Thank you. Thank you, Lorenzo. And next, I'd like to invite our friend from U.S. Bank, Sandy Waliam, who is the Senior Vice President and Bay Area Market Leader. Thank you for your support. Sandy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sandy Walia, and I'm the uh, Bay Area Market Leader for U.S. Bank, where we believe every day that we invest our hearts and our minds to help power human potential. Um, in alignment, actually, with the theme for AAPI Heritage Month, which is strengthening the fabric of our community, uh, U.S. Bank has recently committed to $100 billion uh, investment back into our communities, with 60% of that right here in California over the next five years, to really help make community possible through inclusive and uh, equitable growth. So very excited about that commitment back to our communities. We are passionate and committed to creating more access as well as more opportunities to help all of our minority-owned businesses succeed, as well as helping to close the racial, gap, uh, racial wealth gap in this country uh, through our dedicated program that we've launched, which is called Access Commitment. 
we really believe in putting our people first um, and drawing all of that strength through the diversity which we can see in this room today. And really beha on behalf of all of us at US Bank, we look forward to our continued partnership uh, to serve San Francisco and help make Bay Area a wonderful place. Thank you. Thank you, US Bank, and also appreciate Amazon's multi-year support. Uh, unfortunately, Sally Kay cannot be here today. So um, we are almost at the closing of our press conference. I want to acknowledge, I see a couple of commissioners here. Commissioner Irene E. Riley from the Human Rights Commission is here. Um, Commissioner Yi Ying Liu from the Arts Commission is here. Anybody I'm missing? <laughs> and um, we, um, as we go into May, I already mentioned, uh, please go to our website, apasf.org, for the celebration guide that has a good listing of everything that's happening in the city. I want to specific, uh, and not what is not on the website is our two kickoff events this Saturday. It's very exciting. We are kicking off this Saturday, uh, April 29th, uh, first at, at noontime in Japantown. Uh, Grace Horikiri is there and, and her team. Uh, we are going to have a two, three hours of celebration in Japantown, after which we are going to our Samoan Community Development Center at Invisitation Valley. Thank you very much, Pesci Tito and your team. Uh, they are also have, going to have the API month kickoff. So, you know, everywhere in the city, we want to have action. We want to engage, you know, met, uh, people in the different neighborhoods so that, you know, we are all a part of it. So, um, and I look forward to seeing all of you next Wednesday. We will have a full house. If you have not registered, uh, please do so. And uh, as many of you have been to our events, the first hour is at the Herbst Theater where we do the pre awards presentation um, and some cultural performances. But then everybody comes to City Hall where we will transform it to be our party space. So I hope that all of you will stay and come and enjoy yourselves. So thank you very much for being here. And please take a, a poster with you if you can put it in your organization office space and whatnot, help spread the word, that would be great. SFGovTV. San Francisco Government Television. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm San Francisco Mayor London Breed, and I am joined here today with Commissioner Sean DeRee of the California Highway Patrol, Major General Matthew Beavers of the California National Guard, our District Attorney, Brooke Jenkins, our Police Chief, Bill Scott, and President of the Board of Supervisors, Aaron Peskin, as well as a representative on behalf of Sheriff Paul Miyamoto. We are here to talk about the uh, partnership that will be established between the state and our federal law enforcement agencies. Uh, let me begin by expressing my appreciation to Governor Gavin Newsom for answering the call, for taking on this problem head on, and, and, and his willingness 
to be a partner in the work that he knows we need to do. As a former mayor of San Francisco uh, and someone who grew up in this city, he understands the value of partnership and also understands the value of San Francisco as it relates to the entire state. Here locally, we have been doing, I think, an extraordinary job between our police department and our district attorney's office. They have been working hand in hand as partners to help us address the many challenges around public safety, but more specifically, the challenges related to this fentanyl crisis, which um, includes the large number of people who have died from overdose deaths as well as the open-air drug dealing, the violence associated uh, with this, and how it's impacted the Tenderloin and Soma communities uh, considerably. Uh, time and time again, we have you know, reached out uh, for resources um, to try and get support, and the fact that this is finally happening and it's something that has uh, never happened before uh, will be significant for our Cindy, and will send a strong message to those who are perpetrating these crimes that are holding communities hostage, um, that we will do everything we can to work together to make sure that there is accountability. Uh, some of the challenges that have recently um, been highlighted um, that you may not be aware of. Uh, just this past Tuesday, the San Francisco Police Department made an arrest of someone with five kilos of fentanyl. And just today, our district attorney announced the charges associated with that arrest. And the point I want to make is this is something that has not, was not happening previously. And the fact that our district attorney and our police chief are working hand in hand and just between January and March this past quarter, the amount of drugs seized was over 150% from even last quarter demonstrates to the public that we are doing everything we can. We are making the arrest. We are bringing charges. We are being aggressive as we possibly can to hold people accountable, and I want to appreciate the leadership of our district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, and the leadership of Bill Scott and the teams that they represent because it does take a village, it does take partnership, and now that partnership is expanding, expanding on a statewide level. And so we are appreciative to have our state representatives here to talk about um, some specifics of what they plan to do, um, but we will not provide all of the details of what we plan to do to the public, just the basics. We know that when this plan was first mentioned, when the governor came to San Francisco with the Attorney General Rob Bonta and they did a walk in the Tenderloin, they heard the pleads and the cries of the community asking for help, asking for something different. Well, this is something different, and I am looking forward to a real change in our city. You know, separately from what we plan to do around law enforcement, people have consistently tried to say really horrible things about San Francisco and the challenges around safety. And I say, like any other major city, we have our challenges. 
but there's so many other wonderful things happening in San Francisco right now. Just this morning, I was out at MLK Middle School with kids who were scooting and biking to school, and I was at Fort Mason with a number of high school leaders who all are public school students who are thinking about ways to change the future. All over the city, there are communities coming together for various reasons and loving and enjoying our parks and open space, our public schools. The Warriors will be playing tonight in the championship and concerts and activities and we just hosted one of the biggest conferences the RSA conference here over 40,000 participants descended upon San Francisco and many of them had a really great experience and the point I'm making is it's time for us to write our own narrative about what San Francisco is because we live it and breathe it every single day. And part of adding to the value of our amazing city will be the fact that we will continue around our reforms and the work we need to do in the criminal justice world, but there will and there must be accountability associated with that. And so with that, to talk a little bit more about what our collaborative plans are is Commissioner Sean DeRee of the California Highway Patrol. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Mayor. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Sean DeRee. I'm the Commissioner of the California Highway Patrol. The CHP has a mutual interest in ensuring the safety of California's communities, and we are committed to collaborating with our partners here in San Francisco. Under the direction and leadership of Governor Gavin Newsom and Mayor Breed, state agencies have partnered with city officials, and we have identified specific action items we can take immediately to improve the current issues in San Francisco. Beginning May 1st, next Monday, the CHP will deploy officers to work side by side with San Francisco police officers to enhance public safety within the city with a focus on specified high crime areas. This will be accomplished through three main objectives that the Highway Patrol will be engaged in. First, we'll assist the San Francisco Police Department by increasing uniformed officers in specific areas with the intent to deter and disrupt criminal activity. Second, we will provide specialized training to SFPD officers to assist those officers in their ability to detect, deter, and prevent drug and alcohol-related crimes. And finally, we will use the Highway Patrol's existing resources from our specialized units to provide investigative support to develop criminal cases that will disrupt illegal narcotics trafficking. The CHP's mission is to provide the highest level of safety, service, and security to the people of California. We are proud to stand with the California National Guard, the California Department of Justice, the San Francisco Police Department, and the San Francisco District Attorney's Office in a collaborative effort to address these public safety issues. I'm now happy to turn it over to Major General Matt Beavers. As the Commissioner noted, I'm Matt Beavers of the Cal Guard, and, and I think what I want to do up front is, is dispel a lot of rumors that the California National Guard's presence in this is not going to be boots on the ground in San Francisco. The support that we're going to provide really consists of very talented and dedicated soldiers and airmen that do essentially criminal analyst work. And that's taking a look at all the information that we gener gets generated by uh, law enforcement agencies, taking that information, synthesizing it, 
into actionable information that we can map cartel networks, both operating in the city and outside the city, understand those networks, build a common operating picture of it, and then work to dismantle those networks. And I, I think that's hugely important. We have uh, about 14 or 15 folks that are working on the ground today supporting the Northern California high-intensity drug trafficking area. And we have proven success in this area. I'll give you an example. In San Diego, the San Diego and Imperial high-intensity drug trafficking area where we support, in the last month, in March alone, almost $50 million of fentanyl seizures that our soldiers and airmen supported. So we can do it in San Diego, and we intend to replicate it and do the same work here in your city. And with that, I'll be followed by District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. Good afternoon. I first want to say thank you to Governor Gavin Newsom, as well as General Beavers from the National Guard, as well as Commissioner DeRee from the California Highway Patrol um, for offering their assistance uh, with tackling the open-air drug markets here in San Francisco that Chief Scott and our departments have both been working very vigorously to address over the last nine months together. Uh, what we know is that this is not a problem that's easily solved. And the more support and collaboration that we have allows us to address this problem more expeditiously. And so I'm very uh, excited about the prospect of this collaboration and this new partnership. Uh, this was an opportunity that, at least from the, the vantage point of the National Guard, that was offered to my office uh, about a year or two ago and was declined. That was not in the best interest of San Francisco. What's in the best interest of San Francisco, and particularly communities like the Tenderloin and, and in South of Market, they deserve to make sure that they get to walk down the street without the situation that we currently see. An additional benefit uh, of this collaboration is what, how it will assist us in the prosecution of these cases. More recently, we have uh, experienced that many of our criminal defendants uh, in the area of narcotics dealing are asserting a human trafficking defense. It requires significant evidence on our part in order to rebut that defense. And so I am very excited at the prospect of having uh, additional resources to be able to dispel the notion that people are not here dealing drugs of their own accord because that is clearly what is happening. Today we announced charges uh, against an individual, as the mayor pointed out, who was in possession of five kilos of fentanyl. That could kill more than this entire city. That individual, we argued, should be detained based on the public safety risk that he presents, and the judge at this point has agreed to that detention. We are moving the ball forward in trying to keep Camp San Francisco safe. And, and as I've said, this partnership will only allow us to do that on a higher level. And at this time, uh, I will bring up Police Chief Bill Scott. Thank you, District Attorney Jenkins. And I'd like to start my remarks by thanking our Mayor London Breed for reaching out to Governor Newsom. I also like to thank Governor Newsom. And I want to thank all of our partners that are here with us today as well as our Board of Supervisor, President Aaron Peskin, who's here with us today and is a supporter of making our city a safe city. So I'm going to fill in some of the blanks with some of what you've heard here. The tenderloin and the, the epicenter of the crisis that we're having with fentanyl is a very small area, about a, about a square mile. 
generally about a square mile. San Francisco police officers have made 269 arrests in a very small area in the course of four months. When you think about that, think about your own community and think about a 10 block radius from where you live and think about 269 drug dealers dealing poison on the streets being taken from your community. That is what the people who live and work in the Tenderloin have to deal with day in and day out. And that has to stop. Our police officers have confiscated 39,000 grams of fentanyl year to date. The conversion, that's about 85 pounds of fentanyl. That's a lot of death and destruction. Think about it for a second. And that is exponentially higher than what we seized this time last year. We are working very hard as a city to address these issues, but it's not enough. And that is why we have our partners here. That is why we have Commissioner Duryi and General Beavers and their respective organizations here to help us. And we need the help. I want to make a few things very clear. This city is committed to policing the right way, to policing with dignity and respect, to respecting the people who live, work here, and even respecting the people who commit crimes here. And our partners are here to enhance that. Nothing short, nothing more, nothing less. They will enhance the values of this city. Most of us who live here and work here, the mayor has led this charge, our district attorney, D.A. Brooke Jenkins, myself, Assistant Chief Azar from the San Francisco Police Department who are here, Supervisor Peskin, and almost every public official in this city have heard over and over again that this has to stop. People are fed up with it, we are fed up with it, and our attention needs to be on the people who are causing the problems not on each other. Our attention needs to be on the drug dealers that are making all this happen. And that is exactly where our focus will be. We know this is not a San Francisco alone problem. We know that these people who deal drugs on our streets have tentacles in other cities, in other states, and perhaps in other countries. And we have to do everything we can to bring every resource to bear to identify every piece of these networks that are killing people in our city, and we have to dismantle them. And that is exactly what we intend to do. And whether it be DA Jenkins and her state prosecutions, or whether it be federal prosecutions, we will do what we need to do to make this problem better. Because together, we are stronger. So I want to again thank all of our partners for being here. I know there's a lot of questions and I think at least the general questions have been answered. What's the National Guard's role? What's the CHP's role? We are blessed to have a leader to pull this all together in our mayor and we're gonna do everything that we can to work together to solve this problem. And with that, I will open it up for questions. Yeah, we still arrest them too. We have, we, we seize crack, cocaine, powder crack, 
meth. Um, we see a garden variety, but when you look at the medical examiner's reporting of the last couple of years, and this year is no exception, what's leading the charge and killing people in this city is fentanyl, by far. It's not even close. So that is why we have focused on fentanyl, because that's what's literally killing us right now. And, and we will continue to focus on that. But we do uh, make arrests and seizures for all those other illicit drugs as well. Sure. General, you talked about cartels. Yes. How does that factor, factor into what we're seeing here on the streets? I, I think it's a, it's appropriate place to start. The drugs that come into our cities across our state that not independent of each city. It's not independent of each county. It's fundamentally transnational criminal organizations that bring narcotics into our state and into our cities. So if we start from there, if we look through that prism, I think it gives us a good jumping off point to, to do the tough analytical work to, to determine who those folks are and, and understand their network and their associations and, uh, and then go after dismantling them. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Just the mere presence of our officers being there with the SFPD officers, we believe, will help deter and disrupt criminal activity. Our, our officers are trained in uh, criminal apprehension. They will take action if they see it and make appropriate arrests. Uh, let me be clear. We're, we're not coming in here to take over. The Highway Patrol is going to supplement um, San Francisco's efforts, and we'll complement them in those efforts. Yeah, that's a fair question, and I think it's, we're early in this. We're having discussions on how we will measure uh, the success of it, and those are things that we'll, we'll establish in the days to come. You know, the, the most immediate measure of success is we have to see a change in the streets. I mean, you've heard Mayor Bree say that. You've heard me say it. We have to see a change in the streets. When people can't, I was out there last night, 10 o'clock last night, there were people visiting our city from lands far away that for a short second before our officers cleared it could not even walk down the sidewalks. You know, that has to change. Arrest statistics tell a story and we will keep reporting those statistics because it's of public interest and people want to see that we're working and that we're doing something about the problem. But if I came in here and told you that, I told you 269, if, if I told you 1,000 and you walked out of this building and you still saw drug dealing on the streets, that would probably not matter to you. And if you had to see that every day, you probably don't care about any statistics that we bring before you. So we have to see a change in the streets. And we have to see a change in behavior, more importantly. You know, it's not okay to do what people are doing. And it's not okay not only to deal drugs on the streets, but to use drugs on the streets. And if anybody thinks that's okay, you know, it's not. What are your goals for the program? What do you expect to see? How many months? Do you expect that that are to be completed? Meaning, a year or what are your expectations? Well, these things take time, but we do expect to see some immediate, immediate changes. You know, here, here's the reality, and our officers see it every day, and many of you see it every day. When we deploy, 
large amounts of officers in areas in the Tenderloin or anywhere else in the city, the problem tends to go away while we're there. Now, that's not the long-term solution because sometimes that can be unsustainable, but at least temporarily that'll go away. So we, we want to disrupt this behavior. We want to make it difficult for people to come in this city and county and do what they've been doing, and that's dealing drugs. The longer-term plan, as many of our speakers have said today, you know, there's, there's, an, there's a, an analyst, please. There's dismantling the organizations that are bringing these drugs to our streets. There's prosecutions, both state and federal prosecutions. And at the end of all this, what we want to see is some of these organizations go away and be dismantled. That's, that's a sign of success, because when that happens, you won't see what you see right now on our streets. I can't tell you. We're gonna, I know what the commitment is from these people that are standing here. Right now, we're going to do whatever we need to do, and the mayor and the governor will get together and, and decide. We're trying to build this for sustainability. You know, and part of, it, of that process is putting infrastructure in place or, or enhancing infrastructure that already exists so we can sustain the effort. The last thing we want to do is clean the streets up for a week, two weeks, a month, and then everybody goes back to their regular way of doing things, and then it starts all over again. We, we have to sustain this effort. And so that's how we're trying to build this. Federal partners are definitely dealing with that, and that's a little bit of what General Beavers you know, was talking about with the work that they're doing in, in San Diego. Um, this takes partnership. I mean, that question, the answer to that question is this takes partnership, and no, no, no one organization that's standing before you can do this alone. And people who do this people who deal, people who distribute, people who bring narcotics to any city, they don't care about borders. They don't care where the county lines are, the city lines are. All they care about is making money, and they kill people in the process. And if we aren't smart enough to join together, to fight this together, then shame on us. And, and I applaud the mayor for asking for this help, and I applaud all of our partners for willing to say, hey, we're going to help, because we're all impacted by this. Thank you. Yours is just logistical. How many CHP officers are you and National Guard are there officers? Well, I, I can have uh, Commissioner DeRee and General Beavers answer their, their parts of the question and, and then uh, you had something for me. For the safety of the officers and just the integrity of the operation, I won't disclose exactly how many. I can tell you they're all coming out of our San Francisco area. Uh, the CHP has about 75 uniformed officers assigned to the San Francisco area. Uh, in June, we have an academy graduation scheduled to graduate, and I plan on sending an additional nine officers, so it'll bring us up to 84. Um, I will tell you this, the officers that volunteered to come in and work alongside SFPD officers all volunteered for it. They're all from San Francisco. They love the community. They want to be there and serve the community, and so I think that's an important aspect from our viewpoint. So we have 14 criminal analysts currently assigned to the Northern California High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. Those 14 will be assigned 
a multi-jurisdictional task force that will include um, the folks that are up here on the, on the stage today, so 14. Well, I have more concerns about the number of people who are dying from drug overdoses. I have more concerns about the families and the people who are struggling in these various neighborhoods that are overrun by drug dealers who sadly have increasingly become violent and fight over territory and, and a number of other things. So as far as I'm concerned, my plan is, a, is, is part of what's been missing because this city has been extremely generous with regards to social services. In fact, when you look at our city's budget, the amount of money that we spend for nonprofits and organizations to help with treatment, to help with second chances and support and resources are mostly in the Tenderloin Soma communities and that will not change. We will continue to invest heavily in providing opportunities for people and second chances and, and all of those things, which is different from what was happening in the 80s. There were hardly any alternatives or, or no one didn't even really seem to care about that. Everything was about arrest, lock people up. And in fact, this is different. This is program services, second chances, opportunities, but also accountability. And what's been missing has been accountability, and that's what this is all about. Um, I do want to also mention that measuring of success includes reducing the number of drug overdose deaths um, in this city, which we had seen a decline at one point, and we're starting to see a spike and an increase. And so we want to make sure that we are saving lives in the process of the work that we're doing here in our city. Well, I, I hope it does. Um, and I think that, you know, just recently you recall when we declared a state of emergency in the Tenderloin um, and we set up a linkage center, which was supposed to be the place where um, we not only help people, but also officers had an alternative place to take those struggling with addiction. And it didn't quite work out that way for a number of reasons, including our challenges around capacity with our police department. But ultimately, we can't just sit back and throw our hands up. We need to be innovative. We need to do everything we can to provide all of the resources so that we have the capacity to handle a problem of this magnitude. And as I said earlier, you see that the arrests have gone up considerably from the police department in terms of drug arrests, not just for fentanyl, but just this past weekend, methamphetamine. And you also see the DA continuing time and time again to charge people in these many, many cases. So we're going to continue to do all we can, but this partnership is going to hopefully make a significant difference. I think I want, I want the streets to be safe. I know we all want the streets to be safe, and part of that includes all of the great programs we're doing, but there, there has to be accountability attached to this, and I think this capacity is going to help us get to a better place.
All right, thank you very much. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Well, first off, I want to, of course, welcome all of you to San Francisco. My name is Carmen Chu, San Francisco City Administrator. I hope as you have all come to San Francisco, I believe Monday was the first day that many of our folks, our partners across the country have come to San Francisco, that you've had a chance to take in the breathtaking views of San Francisco, the wonderful food, the wonderful people and community uh, that is here. Um, I apologize, I'm a little bit under the weather. Um, talk about resilience. This is like resilience from my three-year-old's really potent germs <laughs> that gets spread. Um, but again, I want to welcome all of you from across North America to, Sa to San Francisco. We're here today alongside our partners in cities from Houston to Montreal to reaffirm San Francisco's commitment to building a stronger and more resilient San Francisco. It's no secret that San Francisco grapples with some of the most daunting challenges that face cities of our time. We have challenges around affordable housing. It is not unique to San Francisco. The lasting impacts of a global pandemic, the shocks and stressors of climate change, and of course, our ongoing seismic risks, especially here in the Bay Area. But San Francisco has never shied away from these challenges. From the great earthquakes and fires of 1906 to the Loma Prieta earthquake to the booms and busts of past economies, we've proven time and again that we can rise up and we can come back stronger when we face these challenges head on. In the coming years, the resiliency of our city will be tested by our ability not only to respond quickly, but to also bounce back from major climate-related events. That's why it's so important that we are investing in strategies and programs that improve our resiliency and capacity to withstand climate-related emergencies while strengthening our economy. I'm so very grateful for the work of Elaine Forbes, our executive director of the port, who you're going to hear from in just a little bit, to help with preparing our waterfront to adapt to the challenges of sea level rise and flooding. I'm also grateful to the work of Brian Strong, who is our chief resilience officer, for overseeing Yes, applause is great. <laughs> For overseeing and coordinating citywide resiliency initiatives, including our earthquake safety implementation program. In a few minutes, we will all be here signing a letter that affirms San Francisco's continued commitment to the Resilience Cities Network, a global network of cities committed to urban resilience. This signing underscores our pledge to build, to build a city that meets the demands of the future, and we value the opportunity to share our knowledge and best practices with our partner cities around the globe and to hear what everyone else is doing. In only that way will we be able to build a stronger community. So I want to thank the Resilient Cities Network for their partnership within San Francisco, for supporting this work, bringing cities from around the globe together, and for being here and choosing to be in San Francisco. So thank you for that. I'd like to bring up Elaine Forbes, who will share a few remarks with you. Thank you, City Administrator Chu, and welcome uh, climate experts, resilience folks from around the city. 
uh, public officials trying to build a safer and more resilient community. We're very happy to host you at the Ports Waterfront today. Uh, it's really an honor to have you here. And I thought that my comments to um, uplift what our uh, uh, city administrator has, set, has uh, provided to you would be to say what it's like to be an agency that is in a city that is totally dedicated to resilience. So here you are at the port. We have seven and a half miles of waterfront property. And about 10 years ago, we began a journey of figuring out we have something very, very challenging to solve in a really hard place to solve it, and we had to, we had to get to work. Uh, so the first thing is we got our seawall put into the city's assets. This is now 10 years ago where the city stood up and said, hey, what's under there? What's protecting our shoreline? What provides flood protection to the downtown? Then our city administrators team, our mayor's budget office, they won a grant for us called the Living Cities Award. And we went around to other cities to figure out how in the world would we finance flood and earthquake improvements along this historic and important city shoreline. Then um, we started investigating very deeply, learning about all layers of mud down to the bottom, down to the top, how this, how this, uh, how this uh, shoreline is, is stable. And then the city family decided we would go out to our voters with a general obligation bond, now six years ago, I believe, or yes, to say, we know we have a bad problem. Look at all this earthquake risk. We know the tide is rising, and we know the waterfront's important and protects all the city infrastructure and what we love about this town, but we don't quite, quite know what to do. Can we have a 10% down payment so we can figure it out? I was shocked that the city officials were willing to be that proactive and aggressive to say this is a problem to solve. And amazingly, 84% of the San Francisco voters agreed with these city officials. So where are we now? Now, after this long journey of forward planning, we know all the, the soils of the three and a half miles of this historic shoreline that protects so much city infrastructure, transportation systems, et cetera. And we know how to prioritize safety improvements. We also have a study that we're doing with the Army Corps of Engineers, and we're just months and months away from figuring out a plan for flood protection that the city and our city family will engage in. So it's this long-term vision and just such an honor to be a, a, an agency that serves a city completely committed to our future. And so I'm, I'm very proud to be here. And I see my resilience team members are here, Brad Benson and Adam Barrett and others that are really on the, the front lines of working on these challenges. So, so excited uh, to be here today with you all and excited to see and, and exchange great ideas about how to make our community safer in the face of climate change and all the resilience challenges we face. And I'd now like to invite up Brian Strong, who is the Chief Resilience Officer, and he will remember every step of this program that I just described to you. With that, Brian Strong. Thank, thank you, Elaine. And uh, yes, it's been a long journey, and I do remember every step. And there's still more to go. Um, yeah, I'm Brian Strong. I'm the Chief Resilience Officer for the City and County of San Francisco. I, I really want to echo what Carmen and Elaine were exp um, in expressing my gratitude um, for the Resilient Cities Network and for these partner cities coming to the San Francisco, coming to the Bay Area. We were in Oakland yesterday um, and learning this, this sort of knowledge sharing is so important. These are really difficult and tract um, difficult issues. And the more that we can work together, I, I think the better it, it lifts all of us up, right, in, in ways that we can't even think about now, um, the synergy that, that gets formed. Um, so I oversee 
citywide programs and initiatives that bring city departments and community partners together in San Francisco to strengthen our resilience. Um, we've been a long time champion of coordinated citywide resilience planning and initiatives because we know that meeting the challenges of today <clears throat> and the future requires working and innovating together. That's why we really appreciate and participate in organizations like the Resilient Cities Network. Yesterday and today, we we're learning from these cities um, like Norfolk, Miami, Miami-Dade, that are experiencing their own sea level rise challenges uh, and working closely with the Army Corps of Engineers. So we're looking to learn from them and work together. Um, we're also learning from cities like Vancouver, Los Angeles, Oakland, Berkeley, and other places where they have similar challenges with seismic risks on top of climate and sea level rise risks that we face um, that we know are somewhat unique to different regions of the country. Um, San Francisco was the first city um, in the 100 Resilient Cities Network in the globe to hire a chief resilience officer. Um, we released our first strategy in 2016. We've completed about 90% of, of the objectives in that strategy. Um, we, to date, we are now um, following through on a next set of, um, of, uh, of action items. And a lot of those are really focused on it in, through our hazards and climate resilience planning efforts. Um, and it's around our soft story retrofit programs that were successfully completed, but now we're moving to the next set of vulnerable buildings in San Francisco. Um, we are also doing uh, a lot of work in passing critical bonds. Elaine mentioned seawall bond. <clears throat> We've also done a really significant, over a billion dollars worth of housing bonds because we understand that affordable housing is also critical to resilience. We've focused a lot of our efforts on equity to make sure the more our most vulnerable communities are also, um, are, are also being lifted up and not being left behind. We know that there's still more to do uh, and that we need to continue to push forward with the various programs um, that I talked about. But ultimately, you know, resilience is about improving structures, processes, um, to make people's lives and communities more equitable, safe, and able to respond, and also thrive is what I would say. Thrive and gain, you know, benefit from the challenges that we know we're gonna be facing. With that, I would also like to thank um, my boss, uh, City Administrator Carmen Chu, again, for taking on this mantle and for being a champion in San Francisco for this work. Um, I'd also, with that, like to introduce my very good friend and someone I've been working with for several years, Lorian Farrell, she is the Global Director of Knowledge Transportation, of Knowledge Transformation, sorry, for the Global Cities, uh, for the Resilient Cities Network. She also oversees the North American Chief Resilience Officers um, that are all here today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Brian. Good morning, everyone. Um, Thank you, City Administrator Chu and Elaine Forbes also for your words. Um, through your examples, you have shown the types of actions that all cities can take to move toward a resilient future. And we're joined here today by 18 cities from across the United States and Canada. And when we started planning our regional convening and we chose the Bay Area, we did it in part because of this amazing, beautiful geography of the area, of course but also in part because of the breadth of resilience activities that you are all undertaking across the Bay Area. Um, but I would say that we truly picked this, this area to come and visit because of the people that are here doing this work in resilience. And you, you truly are leading the pack in, in resilience. Um, 
You see, building a resilient city is extremely hard, and it takes technical know-how across many, many disciplines. But it also takes people with holistic mindsets, with coalition building skills, and the optimism and belief that it really is possible for us to build urban resilience, resilient cities that, that serve every member of our communities. And we know we must do this because the shocks and stresses that cities are facing are inevitable. We must, we must deal with them. Um, at our cities, we recognize the leadership of San Francisco and CRO Brian Strong, and we thank you for supporting the work of the network since it was originally formed in 100 Resilient Cities Days and reinvented as Resilient Cities Network four years ago. City networks are import, important vehicles for knowledge sharing and for co-creation. Um, personally, I'm a, a water resources engineer by trade from Toronto, Canada. And I started thinking about resilience when I was working in the city, um, doing flood risk management. And so I'm happy to be beside the water <laughs> this morning. I feel quite comfortable here. Um, I worked in, I worked in, I was the person drawing the flood lines, the person telling people where the risks were. I was the person issuing flood warnings to try to people to stay, get people to stay safe and stay away from the rivers. And I was the person trying to figure out mitigation plans for flood risk. Um, and somewhere along the way, I realized that there has to be, there was something missing in my practice as an engineer, and I think what it was, was, was the people element. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking at maps and drawing lines and doing budgets. This led me to resilience, um, to think about how do I broaden my particular scope of practice and become a better engineer. In resilience, I've met so many people who are of different disciplines with the same mindset. How do I become a better economics person? How do I become a better politician? How do I become a better um, person working on social cohesion? And we all come together to try to form resilience, uh, to build resilience. And Brian Strong was one of the first people that I met um, when I started this journey. Um, Brian exemplifies why we need CROs working on resilience and how a network can accelerate resilient outcomes. Brian was instrumental in shaping this network from its inception. Um, he embraced the, uh, the idea that our network is city-led, meaning our cities tell us what they need help on, and we help to bring everyone together to share ideas, to share knowledge. Yesterday, Brian spoke about how the city has been able to establish bonds to implement resilience actions something that many of our cities sat up in their seats and, and listened to. How did you do that? How can we learn from you? Um, during the pandemic, when cities were really struggling in the very, very early days, Brian came to our group and talked about the equitable economic recovery plan that the city of San Francisco was developing. And many, many cities took lessons away from that and applied them into their own cities. These are practical, tangible solutions that are not easy, but San Francisco has found a way to get things done. Um, we want, in this network, to share our knowledge in a way that transforms action, so it changes the way that we build cities. We can build stronger and more resilient cities when we work together. And together is a word I heard Brian saying a lot this morning. So I want to thank Brian Strong and City Administrator Carmen Chu for your support and for the continued support of this network and our global community of resilient cities. Um, and with that, I would like to thank you all for joining us this morning, and I will turn the mic over uh, to City Administrator Chu. Thank you. 
I think oftentimes as we do the work, we, we are doing our work in front of a computer, planning documents and meetings. And I think just being out here, which is a rare thing for me able to, to be able to come out of my office, but to be able to stand out here uh, at the waterfront uh, with all of you serves as a reminder of what's really at stake here. And I just want to thank the team that is here uh, for all the work that they're doing, because what is at stake is the city, right? What is at stake are the people who live and work here, the economy that thrives here. Um, it's this beautiful place that we call San Francisco and all of your cities. And so I think we need to do right. We need to do the right thing. We need to plan. We need to prepare for the things that may not come tomorrow, but we know surely are coming. We know earthquake risk is real. We know that climate change is real and sea level rise is real. And so these are things we can't just pretend don't exist and we don't plan for. What's at risk is making sure we have a city that is resilient and that could withstand all of those shocks that will come. And that's our responsibility. That's all of your responsibilities. So again, I just want to thank all of you for being here. Um, and again, on behalf of the mayor, we are very, very excited to have you here. We're glad that you have had a chance to see our city. We hope you have fallen in love with the city as much as we love our city and we'll come back again. So with that, I'd like to invite all of our chief resiliency officers, all of the folks who have joined us here to come as we sign uh, now. Thank you so much. Come on up. We're not going to sign until you're up here, okay? <laughs> SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. You're watching San Francisco Rising with Chris Manners. Today's special guest is David Chu. Hi, I'm Chris Manners and you're watching San Francisco Rising, the show that's about restarting, rebuilding and reimagining our city. Our guest today is David Chu, the city attorney for the city and county of San Francisco, and he's here today to talk to us about the opioid crisis, reproductive rights, and the non-citizen voting program. Mr. Chu, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Happy to talk about whatever you want me to talk about. So can we start by explaining the difference between the city attorney's office and the district attorney's office? I think it can be slightly confusing. <laughs> that is a very common confusion uh, with members of the public. So. Um, if you get arrested in San Francisco by the San Francisco Police Department, uh, all criminal matters are, are, are dealt with by the San Francisco District Attorney. 
We handle all civil matters on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco. What that means is a number of things. We provide advice and counsel to all actors within city government, from our mayor, every member of the Board of Supervisors, to the 100 plus departments, commissions, boards that represent the city and county of San Francisco. We also defend the city against thousands of lawsuits. So if you slip and fall in front of City Hall, if there's a bus accident, uh, if there is an incident involving the San Francisco Police Department, we defend those matters. We also bring lawsuits on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco. We're most famous for litigating and obtaining the constitutional right to marry for LGBTQ couples. We have sued gun manufacturers, payday lenders, oil companies, you name it, who are undercutting the rights of San Franciscans and the city and county of San Francisco. So now, moving on to the opioid crisis, I understand you've had some success in court um, dealing with manufacturers, distributors, and and pharmacies. Um, Could you elaborate a little bit on that for us? So the opioid industry, and by that I refer to the legal industry that prescribes pain pills, um, over years uh, deceived Americans and uh, resulted in literally thousands upon thousands of deaths and tragedies that we see on our streets every day. Uh, When it comes to the addictions that folks are experiencing, many of the addictions really stemmed from what happened over a decade plus period where the prescription pain industry marketed prescription pills in ways that were false. We were one of thousands of jurisdictions around America that brought a lawsuit against the opioid industry, but we've had a particular set of successes that others have, have not. Uh, we initially brought a lawsuit a few years ago against every part of the opioid supply chain, and that included manufacturers, distributors, and retailers, including pharmacies. Over the course of four plus years, a number of these corporate defendants settled with us. Uh, we've as of this moment, brought in over $120 million of cash and services to the city to help address uh, the root causes of what we're talking about. Uh, But a few months ago, we had uh, really a historic verdict against the pharmacy Walgreens and their role. Walgreens was responsible for literally uh, over 100 million pills flooding the streets of San Francisco over a period of years where they flouted federal law that required them to track where their pills were going to. They had a what, what we refer to as a fill, fill, fill pharmacy culture where folks would bring in their prescriptions and the pharmacist would just fill them without checking why someone was coming in multiple times, without checking why certain doctors were seeing a 100-fold increase in the number of opioid prescriptions that they were prescribing. So we had a historic judgment uh, against Walgreens recently, but it's been a a very intense lawsuit. And we know that we'll never bring back the lives that we have lost to opioid addictions, but it's critical for us that we get the resources that that we need. Maybe one other thing I'll mention because it's often a confusion, a large percentage of folks who are addicted to street-level drugs, say heroin or fentanyl, started their addictions with painkillers, opioid medications that were prescribed through doctors, provided through pharmacies. And so literally, the suffering that we're seeing on our streets was caused by the opioid industry over many, many years um, and has created the significant crisis that we are dealing with right now. Right, right. 
Now, moving on, I understand after the recent Supreme Court ruling striking down Roe versus Wade that you've put together um, an organization that's designed to help provide free services to people um, who are both seeking abortions and providing them. Can you tell us about the organization? Sure. So um, before the Dobbs decision came down, but after we learned about the leak from the Supreme Court about the draft that suggested the decision would be as bad as it has turned out to be, um, I reached out to leadership from the Bar Association of San Francisco because we knew that if that decision came down, there would be tens of thousands of patients around the country, as well as providers whose legal situation would be in jeopardy. Women, doctors, nurses who could be subjected to lawsuits, who could be arrested, who could be prosecuted, particularly in red states, uh, 26 states where uh, rights are being rolled back or in the process or have already been rolled back because of the Dobbs decision. So we put out a call to lawyers all over the Bay and frankly all over the country and as of this moment, there have been over 70 law firms that have answered our call to be part of the Legal Alliance for Reproductive Rights, who have committed to reviewing cases and providing pro bono assistance to patients and providers who are at legal risk. We also uh, are looking at potential cases that these lawyers can bring against various states uh, in these areas that are looking to deprive women and patients and providers of their, of their rights. Um, it is a very dark time in America, and uh, I'm really proud that, that Bay Area attorneys, the legal community here, have stepped up to answer the call. No, that's very important. That's great. So now, the non-citizen voting program that was passed by voters just for school boards has faced some court challenges recently, but it was in place for the most recent election that we've had. How do you see that situation panning out? Yeah, in fact, it's been in place for now five school board elections. Um, so a little bit of background. In our San Francisco schools, over one out of three kids has a parent who is a non-citizen who doesn't have a say in the election of the policymakers that dictate the future of our San Francisco public schools. And so over a number of years, there has been a movement to allow immigrant parents to vote in school board elections. A few things I'll mention about that is uh, our country has a very long history when it comes to allowing immigrants to vote. From 1776 for 150 years till after World War I, uh, immigrants were allowed to vote in most states in our country on the theory that we want to assimilate immigrants in American democratic uh, values and institutions. And it wasn't until an anti-immigrant backlash in World War I that that sort of ended. But in recent years, um, cities across America have allowed this to happen. In fact, at this moment, I believe there are over a dozen cities that have voted to allow non-citizens to vote in a number of contexts. Now, this is particularly important in our schools, just given how challenged our schools are, and given that we know that when we engage more parents in our school system, regardless of their citizenship, it helps to lift up our schools for all parents. And so in 2016, the voters of San Francisco passed a ballot measure that allowed this to happen. Unfortunately, earlier this year, there were conservative organizations that came to San Francisco to bring a lawsuit uh, to try to overturn this. And I should also mention, uh, it is obviously the pers perspective of our office and our city that this is constitutional. Nothing in the Constitution prohibits non-citizens from voting. 
And in fact, there's an explicit provision in the Constitution that allows chartered cities like San Francisco, when it comes to school board elections, to be able to dictate the, the, the time and manner of those elections. And so uh, we are involved in litigation on this issue. There was an initial ruling that was not good for us that essentially said at the trial court level, we shouldn't allow this. Um, it, we appealed it up to the appellate level. Uh, the appellate court made an initial decision to allow this past November election to proceed as it has for the last previous four elections. Uh, we're gonna be in front of that court soon. Stay tuned, we'll see what happens. It was good to hear that the city was able to reach a settlement with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, that meant Laguna Honda could still operate. Yes. How did you manage to reach that agreement? It was not an easy conversation, just a, a, a little bit of background. So Laguna Honda has been an incredibly important institution in San Francisco for 150 years, taking care of our most vulnerable patients, our, our frail, uh, very elderly patients, many of whom are at end of life. And a few years ago, there were some issues in that hospital, uh, some violations of rules that we very much want to make sure don't get violated. There were folks that weren't using proper PPE, who were bringing cigarette lighters into the facility, who might have brought some contraband into the facilities. We have zero tolerance for that and have made that very clear. We self-reported some of these violations to the federal authorities. And unfortunately, from our perspective, they took the very disproportionate step of ordering the closure, the permanent closure of Laguna Honda. Problematic on a number of reasons. First and foremost, there are just no skilled nursing facility beds, not just in California, but around the country. After their order came down, we literally were putting a thousand calls a day to skilled nursing facilities around California and around the country and could find nowhere to move the 700 patients that we had had in Laguna Honda. But just as disturbingly, as we were forced to start moving some of these patients, uh, a number of them died. There's a concept in medicine known as transfer trauma. When you move someone who is that frail, and unfortunately, folks, folks died. And we were at a point where we were five weeks away from the deadline for the federal government uh, that they had provided to us to close the facility. So, uh, and we had been trying for months to get the federal government to reconsider their action. So I was compelled to bring a lawsuit on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco and very pleased and appreciate that we were able to come to a settlement whereby transfers will be delayed at least until next year. We're gonna have at least a year of funding to keep the facility open. And hopefully we can get back up on our feet and ensure that no future violations occur uh, because this is an institution that has to stay open for the good of these patients. Quite right, quite right. So finally, congratulations on winning an important public power service dispute with PG&E. Um, why is it important that the city's rights as a local power provider are maintained? Well, so San Francisco has been a local power provider for, for decades. We are fortunate to have access through our Hetch Hetchy hydroelectric system to provide electricity to a number of providers, uh, particularly public recipients of that. And unfortunately, PG&E has used its monopoly when it comes to private electricity uh, to try to stop that and to block that. And from our perspective, they violated federal law in adding literally tens of millions of dollars of expenses to San Francisco and institutions that were trying to ensure um, public power infrastructure, put years of delays on our ability to do this. And so we had to bring a number of appeals 
in uh, a federal commission. Uh, we were successful in those appeals, and there was a decision recently uh, that basically held that PG&E could not use its monopoly to unfairly delay or add tens of millions of dollars of cost to the city and county of San Francisco as we are trying to move forward with our vision of public power. Clearly, PG&E uh, has not been able to serve not just San Francisco, but Northern California well. We all know that with the wildfires, with its bankruptcies, with all the issues that they've had. We think there is a different model to move forward on, and we are grateful to the court in providing. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Okay, madam. Yeah. All right. Ready? Okay. Okay, uh, we are now back in public session. I want to thank members of the public for your patience and continued engagement as we now resume our open session meeting. Commissioners, do I have a motion? A word or other disclosed action taken or discussions held in a closed session? I move to not disclose the substance of the closed session. Second. Okay, unanimous consent? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now let's go to item number 11. Uh, discussion and possible action regarding preliminary matters in the matter of Paul Allen Taylor, case number 20-243, 1920-031. This item is being called in connection with an ongoing enforcement matter involving the respondent, Paul Allen Taylor. In December of last year, the executive director issued a finding of probable cause in this case. The executive director found that probable cause existed to believe that the respondent committed eight violations of campaign finance laws. Before a hearing on the merits can be held in this case, the commission needs to resolve any relevant preliminary matters. Through this agenda item, the commission will decide the method in which uh, it will use to resolve preliminary matters. This could include appointing a member of the commission to make decisions on behalf of the full body. 
The Enforcement Division has presented a memo making recommendations about how preliminary matters should be handled. And today we have our senior investigator, uh, Mr. Zach DeMarco, uh, who will be uh, making a brief comment uh, and to answer any questions that the commissioners may have. Um, and afterwards, Mr. Taylor would have the same opportunity to speak uh, and to answer any questions that commissioners may have on him. So, Mr. DeMarco, welcome. Thank you. So I will be fairly brief and open it up to questions. Uh, everything is in the memo as well as in the larger guidebook, both of which were provided to, directly to the respondent and provided to the public on our website. Uh, so I wanna just mention three quick things that I'll draw your attention to first. Uh, just to, obviously we're not gonna be dealing with substance today, but to just take a step back and remind you of the case in general. Uh, this was a case where the respondent, Mr. Taylor, was alleged to have coordinated between a committee and a PAC to facilitate a $10,000 expenditure by the PAC that went towards supporting the committee. His coordination is alleged to have turned that expenditure into a contribution, which is far over the $500 limit. Um, flowing from that, the executive director found probable cause for eight counts. The first two were that the respondent caused violations by both the committee to have accepted the contribution over the limit and the PAC to have given the contribution over the limit. Counts three through six are related to the respondent causing both the committee and the PAC to have not filed the proper campaign finance filings. They didn't report the $10,000 contribution on their 460s and they didn't file 497s late contribution reports for the contribution. Count seven was for not registering as a campaign consultant. Count eight is for withholding information and not complying with a duly in, uh, authorized investigation, including several subpoenas. So the second point I'd like to just draw your attention to is a bit on the timeline of this case and how we ended up here. We worked for several years uh, as part of the investigation to reach a stipulation as we do and as we try to and hope to in all our cases, uh, we were unable to, it was not possible in this case. Uh, after it became clear that a stipulation wasn't going to happen, we... Was that because the financial penalty was too stiff or...? That was... Yeah, it was a lack of cooperation. We attempted to, I have a, I can go into more detail if you'd like at a certain point, but um, we attempted to reach out to the respondent multiple times. Uh, investigators talked to him via phone on September, in September 2020 to notify him of a document request, sent the request that same day, sent follow-up emails twice in October. We don't need that level of detail. Okay. It was a lack of uh, just wasn't responsiveness whatsoever. Right. Yes. Right. So just briefly, so after the, it became clear that a stipulation wasn't possible, investigators served respondent with a probable cause report and a subpoena for documents at the same time in person on October 25th of this year, followed up sending it via mail the next day and email two days later. Um, there was a three week deadline for the respondent to both file a response and to request a PC conference. Uh, we sent a reminder of that deadline on November 9th. The deadline passed on November 15th with no request, no response. Um, therefore, per regulations, the executive director had until 60 days from issuing the PC report to then issue a PC determination. Uh, so that PC determination came on December 19th. Uh, the commission had five days to 
ratify it. It was ratified on December 26th, which was the Monday after the five-day deadline, uh, and that is how we have ended up here. Um, and then the third thing, I will just briefly draw your attention to what actually we're here for today, and that is uh, there are four separate items, decisions really, before the commission today that will allow us to then proceed with preliminary matters, which have to happen before we can have a hearing in this case. So the first item is deciding who will be presiding over the preliminary matters. As the memo goes over, that can be an individual, either a commissioner or an outside hearing officer, or it can be the entire commission. The second item is to set a deadline for motions to be filed with whoever is presiding over preliminary matters. Uh, that includes requests for subpoenas, motions to make determinations on preliminary matters. The third item is just a process for submitting those motions. Our regulations are silent on how people should do that, and we want to make it very clear so that everyone knows what's expected of them, whether they email or mail those requests and motions and who they send them to. And finally, item four is uh, if the commission decides today to appoint an individual for preliminary matters, the commission retains the right to review that individual's determinations, and the regulations are silent on what process is in place for that review. So if you decide to appoint someone, then uh, we ask that you set out a process for your review, including how a party requests review, when the review happens, what the party's role is in the review, and that's pretty much it. Uh, the memo goes into more detail. As I mentioned, the guidebook goes into more detail. That was provided to everyone. I'm here to answer questions, both on individual agenda items and on the case and process as a whole. Uh, and with that, I will turn it back. Colleagues, do you want to hear from Mr. Taylor before we have any questions to both parties? Or you wanna? Well, I did have a question for Mr. D'Amico, but maybe the fact that Mr. Taylor is even present will answer it. My thinking was hearing you speak that he's that the respondent will probably not participate in the preliminary hearing either, that he may not show up at all, but it sounds like there is some engagement if he's at least participating today. Yes, uh, he is. it sounds like he is participating today. So. All right, well... We'll deal with that then later. So uh, why don't we, um, can we patch in to Mr. Taylor and then have him. Sure, please stand by. Before us. Good afternoon, Mr. Taylor. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Okay, perfect. We can hear you. I was waiting for it to come up on my computer but they, you guys aren't on there now. Mr. Taylor? We can hear you fine. Yes. Mr. Taylor, can you please proceed? Say that again. Would you like to proceed with your comments? Have you, I just came back on. Have you guys already discussed your side? We had just heard from the staff's report, and we would like to hear from you. We gotta stop. We gotta stop. Somebody has to figure this out. Oh. Yeah, Mr. Taylor, it looks like you have logged in twice. So I, I logged in on my phone to find out if the meeting was was still going on. It's not on my computer. I, I just wanted to watch. I didn't have any comments. had no comments okay. that he just wanted to watch. Okay, so Mr. Taylor, um, I understand you do not wish to make any comments 
on your item? I don't know what you're going to say for me to comment about. Can you can you help him figure out? Taylor, could you mute your other device or turn the speaker off? We were hearing echo, so it's difficult to hear you when you speak. Mr. Taylor, can you hear us now? Is that better? Much. Thank you. Yes. yes. Right. Thank Great. you. So he doesn't know what you're asking. So, Mr. Taylor, uh, we have just taken up the um, item that involves you. And we just heard from the staff's uh, presentation and I understand you choose not to make any statements. Is that correct? Well, I wasn't, I was sitting here waiting to hear the presentation, but I wasn't able to get on until I called you on my cell phone here. In other words, every time I tried to relaunch the webinar, which I was watching and listening on my computer, it never once came on again after even though I got a heads up that you were going to be coming back on. So I've not heard since you came back on or came out of closed session one word of what your people have had to say. So I, I can't comment unless, okay. I, unless I have that. Okay. So um, I'll have uh, the, the greatest sense of fairness. Uh, I would ask our senior investigator, Mr. DiMarco, to repeat his brief presentation. Uh, the way this is going to go is the staff is going to make a presentation. The commission will hear from you, Mr. Taylor, and then we would have questions for both of you. So, uh, Mr. DiMarco? If it makes sense, what I can do is repeat the last part, which mm -hmm. is what is That's going to be need. happening. That's um, okay, great. So what we are here for today are four potential decisions for the commission to make before this case can proceed to preliminary matters. The first decision is who should preside over those preliminary matters. The commission has the option to appoint an individual, either a commissioner or an outside officer, or to hear preliminary matters all on their own. The second decision is to set a deadline for motions and subpoenas to be due into the preliminary matters commissioner or the entire commission, uh, a date for those things to be due. The third is for how those things should be submitted, who they should be sent to, and via email or mail or some other method. The fourth is the process by which the commission would review any determinations if they do appoint an individual to make those determinations. The commission can uh, make a decision on how parties can request that review and what role they'll have and how the review will run. So that is what the commission is here and you know, Mr. Taylor can. Mr. Taylor, can you hear us? I heard you. Yeah. So the bottom line is we're about to launch into a big process here about determining um, the, the allegations that it, uh, the campaign finance allegations against you. Um, we don't typically do that. It's, this is pretty un uncommon. What usually happens is that staff and whoever is uh, involved in these allegations usually come to some kind of settlement well in advance. 
we're being told by staff that you just haven't responded to them. Is there a way that we can just resolve this without going through this whole rigmarole, or do you want to, you're entitled to go through the full due process and this hearing that we're about to engage upon, but I just want to make sure before we do that we're all on the same page that you don't want to try to work this out as some sort of settlement to get it done quickly and so we don't have to go through the whole process. I, I don't even know what, the, what your charges really are. I don't know what you have that, to support those charges. I don't have any responses from anything that I have mailed into the ethics committee there. All right, is there a way that we can uh, organize a meeting between you and the Art Enforcement Division to make, to make that all clear? You don't think that that's a, worth anybody's time? It sounds like we've been down this road and I credit staff with having tried to make, uh, make those connections. I disagree. I, I, I would like, I would say go for one. If, if Mr. Taylor would be willing to come to have a meeting to have these ish, issues discussed, it seems like you've never made contact. We have, a, we have made contact. Uh, we have then been ignored repeatedly through email, in-person service, voicemail, phone calls. We have also received numerous mailings in response to right. the probable cause report, which came with all evidence that we were using, and those mailings accused our office of violations of the RICO Act and of violations of due process of every part of the Constitution and demanded a million dollars from our commission, and we felt that we were unable to have any productive conversations with the respondent. Mr. If he is willing to meet, we are happy to meet, I will say that. Okay. I think that we had received the staff, the executive director's report on uh, probable cause a few months ago that outlined all the, the contacts and all the um, outreach that the staff has made. So, so I don't see any um, benefits if we were to delay it you know, a few more weeks to, to have Mr. Taylor uh, come back and, and engage with the staff because everything was already outlined. If we, if you can make that report available to other uh, commissioners and and uh, even Mr. Taylor, you know that's fine. But I think that we need to really address this. Um, is the time sensitive? Is it the time sensitive matter? Because the don't we have to act within a certain period after the? There is no immediate deadline right now. This meeting is intended to kick off the preliminary matters process and set deadlines, and then there will be deadlines. Okay. But at this moment, there are no current. Do you have an estimated penalty is what you guys would offer as a first? No, we can't talk about that right now. Okay. Okay, so colleagues. Uh... This is that what you're... Your accusations are, are not true, and so there's no reason to talk about a settlement because they're not true. I have not violated anything. That's absolutely, you're right to. That's what we, that's what we're here to determine. Yes. That's the whole that's the whole point. I agree. So I think the questions that I have for Mr. Taylor are what's on the agenda. Whether he has an opinion about whether we should appoint a commissioner to preside over preliminary, preliminary matters, whether we should uh, do it as a body and deadlines for filing motions to address those preliminary matters, sorry, that's a tongue twister, 
So Mr. Taylor, if you have thoughts on that, I would love to hear them. So you're presenting two options, is that what I'm hearing? Well, the agenda item has been posted on our website. Oh, don't do that. We don't. Well, I, I'm not gonna read the entire memo, but the first decision that we're facing is who's gonna preside over the preliminary matters. The options are a member of this commission, a licensed attorney who's not on the commission, or we do it as a full body, so the three options. You have a feeling. I don't, on, think, I don't think that's what and he that asked. is our discretion. This is the commission's discussion um, and decision. Right. So I think that um, after we hear from Mr. Taylor, and if Mr. Taylor doesn't have any further things to add, and you, if we don't have any other questions to ask, then it is up to this body to decide uh, whether um, to appoint a member of the commission hire a public uh, outside counsel or to um, conduct this as a full commission uh, to conduct, uh, to carry out the motions uh, on preliminary matters. That's what's in front of us right now. That's what I'm inviting Mr. Taylor to opine on. Mr. Well, Taylor? my trust level is very low for you because you guys came at me accusing me of something that I would never do and I never did. And that, then you threatened that if I didn't give up information you have no right to, then you would send in police to take my computers and my phones and anything they could find in a search of my property, which this is not a fishing hunt uh, you know, uh, that you come here looking for stuff to try to find a crime. There is no crime. Right. So, so and, and so you're you're violating and you're moving along with this as if you are that I don't have a chance to prevail with the truth. No, that's exact. That's sorry. Sorry. This is so complicated and, and it's difficult to do this over the phone. I appreciate that. We are trying to set up essentially a trial so you can present your case for the truth and then there'll be determination. These are sort of pre-trial matters that we're trying to establish. We're wondering if you have any feelings about how to do the pre-trial matters on who should determine the rules of the road, as it were. I understand, and that's the reason why I sent you uh, some questions to show your jurisdiction to put me in a trial, and you didn't respond, and that's why the penalties have come at you because I've sent in a lot of, uh, of uh, printed documents for you to read and, and to respond to. You say, I don't respond, but you guys have not responded. Now you have delivered the subpoena to a place that I no longer occupied and, and you use that against me. So, uh, so I never received that. And so everything that I see that's going on in your arena makes me feel unat ease that, that a fair trial or if anything fair or truthful is gonna come out of this. Also tied into this that makes it even more difficult is this, is that you're coming after me, somebody did nothing wrong 
and but yet the violators who had the billboards that this whole thing was based about taken down and removed, which is a federal crime, you do nothing about it. The 20 billboards that I produced and 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 managed that's all I did was produce them as as a as a guy asked to produce something were taken down after they were up for two days. So, Mr. Taylor, and, I'm not yeah. I'm not your lawyer, but I would encourage you not to start talking about the facts. We're going to have a proceeding at some point, presumably, to address this. We, today, we're really focused on the preliminary matters about how to design the rules, the rules of the road. If you don't have an opinion, that's fine, but this is your chance to have an opinion. I don't have an opinion right now. Okay. Okay. And we appreciate that you're maintaining that you didn't do this, and we will, that's the whole point of doing this, okay? Would the commission like for me to comment briefly on a few process things that he mentioned just to respond or no? Yes, but I, I just want to put in the record that uh, I want to make sure that the public knows that this commission, its members and its representatives uh, would not threatened anybody's personal or property. So I just want to make sure that's the case. You have a chance to respond, and I want the record to reflect that. Thank you for the opportunity, yes. So we delivered both the subpoena and the probable cause report in person. Two of our investigators traveled, delivered them to Mr. Taylor in person, also sent them mail by mail and by email to the email address, which we have have since received a response from him on other emails uh, just about attending today. Uh, in that PC report, I would also note we outlined where the commission gets its authority, its legal authority, and its jurisdiction over his behavior. Uh, and finally, we did not follow up on the subpoena and make any threat about whether or not he responded and what we may or may not do. So the next step is for us to consider options involve the, the preliminary um, matters. Options. And first of all, in terms of timing, are we required to take the decision today? Or can we table it until a further meeting? That is up to you. You are not, there are no current deadlines. We put it on the agenda because it is required to move forward, but there's no deadline for you to do it today. Okay. So among the three options, uh, may I just suggest that we uh, delete the outside council one due to budgetary constraints. So that means it has to be one of the four of us? Yeah, because the decision is, yeah, the decision is about us. All right. I think we should just pick one of us to deal with the preliminary matters. I doubt all four of us want to sit on dealing with these um, preliminary matters. I mean, if we do, by all means, let's hear it. Are folks interested in doing this as a commission? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's what I'm hearing, Mike. Not it. I mean, does anybody want to do it? Do I have a volunteer? Um, I. I would do it. I think I have the experience where I could do this well. I've tried criminal cases. I've worked for a judge for many or several years. I have a question about timing, though. Um, I know part of this we're also picking, and I'm not getting ahead of any decision on who's going to do this, but just in terms of timing, there's 
one of the action items is figuring out a deadline to serve motions or to file motions. Following from that, when do you envision, is there an idea for when decisions on those motions would be decided? In other words, what's the, you know, the turnaround? Uh, that would be up to you or whoever's appointed in this instance to be the, to handle preliminary matters. These are the decisions before you are the only four decisions that should be made by the whole commission and everything else. There are deadlines, there are, you know, how certain things should be done that the preliminary matters commissioner or if the whole commission hears it, the whole commission will decide. Okay. So. so can I just appoint um, Commissioner Finlaff to um, preside over this preliminary, uh, preliminary matter? Uh, at the earliest convenient time between you and uh, other parties? It, it would require a majority vote to appoint oh. an individual. Okay. Do we need a well, motion? If, if, if other folks are interested, I'm happy to hear from them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I move to appoint uh, Commissioner Finlef. Seconded. You, yes. You should take public comment yeah, public on this comment. item before you take any well, action. Do we have, wait, wait, hold on a second. Do we have to take public comment on each of the four different? Uh, right. Uh, right, Mike, Mr. Commissioner Romano means can we wait until we make the other decisions and then take public comment? But public comment needs to happen before the commission takes any action on this item. Right, okay. but can our action be an omnibus action? Sure, that's fine. And set the deadline. It and then make the motion at the end, sure. All right, I retract my motion. Okay, so so. I think my first suggestion is we already propose an assigned commissioner. The second one is setting a deadline, right? Thirty days. Yeah, I think the deadline in here seems fine. The May fifth. Yep. Third. Um, to direct the parties to file motions regarding the preliminary matters, right? Your email and copy to the other party. That's yeah. ID a process for the parties to request commission review of the assigned commissioner's determinations that mirror the process for reviewing the ED's recommended recommended findings of probable cause. Right. So we're voting on all four and taking the public comment on all four. What's the fourth one? I think that is to to adopt the process that exists for the ED's current process for recommending PC findings. Okay, so it's to adopt the current process. It's to adopt the current process that's used when you all review the executive director's PC determination. It's use the, use same, process. the same process for this instance. Got it. Okay. I move all four of those items. Then you second, then we'll go to public comment. Okay. okay, public comment. Okay, Madam Chair, we are checking to see if there are any callers in the queue. Please stand by. Madam Chair, there's no callers in the queue. Before moving on, I would just ask you guys to try one more time to meet with him, it, hopefully in person. No emails, no whatever. Just try to meet with him. Call him on the phone. Try. We to will continue to do so, him. yes. And thank you all everyone and Mr. Taylor for your patience since this is a new process for all of us. Yeah, ditto, thank you.
There's no, no public. No more callers. Public comment is closed. Uh, unanimous consent yep. on the vote. Okay, thank you. Move to agenda item number 12, discussion of possible action regarding proposed stipulation decision and order in the matter of Michael Cobruno. Um, Director Ford. Thank you, Chair, Commissioners. Uh, thanks for making it through a long meeting so far. Um, item 12 is a stipulation. Uh, the reason this is not on the consent calendar like the other stipulations is just because of timing. So this is one of those things where the stip gets signed shortly before the meeting. You don't have the opportunity to pull it from consent, so we just place it on the regular calendar. Um, so I'll, I'll treat it like a consent item and just be here if you have questions, but I'm not gonna make a presentation on it. Um, We'll just point out that the respondent's counsel is present here in the room today. Okay. Um, would counsel want to make any comments? Okay. Uh, do I have a motion to approve? Can I ask just I, yeah, I have some questions? Um, it seemed like there were some contacts that were reported and others that were not. Was there a pattern as to which ones were and were not? And it may be in the in what's in front of me. I'm just asking if you can draw me to it or, or clarify. I, I don't think so. Um, I would say that they were all confined to three of the clients, um, and those clients are, are noted in the STIP. Um, that's a pattern, but otherwise we didn't find a particular pattern amongst those unreported contacts. Thank you. That's my only question. That was actually, I had a similar question, so. Okay. Second. Are you making the motion? Oh, no, I'm just asking for a motion. Uh, so, so moved. Second? Okay. Uh, public comment, please. Madam Chair, we have one caller in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. My name is Ellen. My name, my, my name is Ellen Lee Zhao. I raised my hand a long time and nobody asked me to speak for item 11. And yet you talk about my name in item 11. I'm asking you and request you my three minutes for item 11 because you lie to the public. There's no public comment. When I raise my hand, you do not allow me to speak. My name is Ellen Lee Zhao. I am the person mentioned in item 11. As of today, May 5th, 2023, at the commission, still shut me off doing the solution, doing the public hearing. In item 11, it's about 2019 when I run for mayor campaign, the billboard that I paid for. When I run for my campaign in 2019, I have no campaign manager, no pay advisor, no pay staff, no pay employee, and all volunteers. Everything done according to ethic commission's instructions. My campaign billboards were illegally removed after many elected officials and city leaders came out to press release and the news conference, calling me racist, and then illegally removed my campaign billboards. What's a violation? against my constitutional rights, and I reserve all my legal rights to sue. 
The credibility of the city is worthless due to illegal action against me and my volunteers. My billboard was about human trafficking, child trafficking crime within San Francisco city government that abused homeless. My campaign was promoting a new people government to reduce homelessness, child trafficking, human trafficking, drug trafficking, which is today became a real pandemic for San Francisco. That more than 1,500 people die each year in the last three years. 31% of the cell phone not able to renew. One third of the business closed. Many unvaccinated people fired from their job in San Francisco. And many businesses have been closed. Attention, please. Many problems will continue if San Francisco leaders include the mayor, the board of supervisors, all elected officials, department heads, and ethic commissions are not coming back to God. Only God can help you and can revive our city, San Francisco. For you to shut me off and purposely and do not allow me to speak when I raise my hand, that is a violation, it's illegal. You are running a tyranny government. Today, I'm asking you to look at the real problems. Instead of targeting me, my volunteers, and mayor candidate, and- Your three minutes has expired. Deputy City Attorney Brad Rusty, Commissioner, um, I the clerk confirmed that uh, Ms. Zhao did not have her hand raised for the prior item, but now she has been given an opportunity to speak to prior item 11. Perhaps you can confirm whether she has any comments to make on item 12, which is the stipulation regarding Mr. Colbrano. Okay. Um, is Ms. Zhao still on? Yeah. If she wants to comment specifically on agenda item number 12. Since she has um, used her three minutes on agenda, uh, agenda item number 11 already. Okay, okay. Let's move on to um, public comment on, let's continue, no more comments? Okay. No. Public comment is closed. Uh, we have a motion and second unanimous consent. Yes. Yep. Okay, thank you. Let's go to agenda item number 13, discussion and possible action regarding proposed stipulation decision and order in the matter of Bear Star Strategies. Director Ford. Okay, last one today, I promise. So this item was continued from the last meeting. The reason is that Commissioner Romano had to recuse himself from this item and therefore there was not a quorum because Commissioner Flores-Fang had an excused absence last month. Um, she's here uh, this month. So now, uh, assuming that Commissioner Romano will again uh, recuse himself, there is a quorum. So that's why we, we place this on the agenda today. Right, okay. Um, do I have a motion? I'll, I'll move to approve. Second. Does the I'm, Mr. Deputy Chief Attorney want to say something? Does Commissioner Romano have a conflict on this item? Um, I don't have a financial conflict. I forget with the exact language that we talked about, about my recusal. I have a family member who's involved with Bear Star and I'd just rather not. Like a due process conflict then perhaps, or? I mean, I, I'll be candid. If I have a, you have I have a conflict, a, you can't be in the room while they're all right. considering this. However you want. I have a family member who is a principal at Bear Star and I'd rather not vote on anything related to them. I don't feel like I have a financial conflict or anything. I just think in the abundance of caution, I don't want to participate. Okay. 
Generally, Commissioner, if you don't have a financial or legally required conflict, you need to ask the commission to excuse you by vote from participation in this item. But you can do that now and leave the room, have them consider the item, and then come back. Okay, so. I would grant that word asked. Eric, will you excuse me from voting on this item? Seconded. Thank you for raising it. I think it's an important issue. Yeah. Thanks for your All right, so I should. You, okay, we need to vote. Okay. okay, a motion has been made and seconded. I will now call the vote. Oh, right. oh you can vote. Oh. <laughs> Commissioner Finlove. <laughs> oh, could we do this by unanimous? Yes, to allow Commissioner Romano to remove himself. Yes, aye. Okay, uh, Commissioner Flores Fang. Yes. Chair Lee. Yes. Commissioner Romano. Yes. With four voting, it's a unanimous decision with four votes. Okay, so you need to be excused while we take the public comment. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Is that the deal? All right. Okay. Two minutes. Maybe. Three minutes. <laughs> okay. So do we make a, do we still need to make the motion? Renew the motion? You need, yeah, you need to consider the item, whether you're gonna adopt the stipulation, take public comment. Okay. Okay, I move to approve this uh, item. Any second? Second. Okay, let's go to public comment, please. Okay, Madam Chair, we have one caller in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. Well, good afternoon right now. My name is Ellen Lee Zhao. I spoke earlier. You shut me off twice and you do not allow me to speak. So this item is a, another part of government corruption. Whatever you do, it's between only four commissioners and some pay staff, and it's all related to people who appointed to you. Maybe the public, it's now time to check out who are the commissioners, who related to what people inside City Hall, and whether they get paid or not. Because I do not trust you, each one of you, in a business, when people try to speak, you cut people off, shut people off, lying to the public about people do not respond when people responded to you, about people wasting hands, and you said nobody wasting hands. I'm asking you today to look at the real social problems that created by you, the Ethic Commission, and many of the elected officials, instead of targeting an individual like me, conservative, and a candidate back in 2019, and he's still going after people that is not related to anything, the problem that you're facing. I'm asking you to moving forward to solve social problems, city problems, politicians that is corrupted pay by the one world order government. I thank you for your time for serving the city and thank you and may God bless San Francisco. And again, my name is Ellen Lee Zhao and I thank you for having your time and may God bless you. Madam Chair, there's no further callers in the queue. Again, I want the record to reflect that every caller is entitled to three minutes, and that's been uh, observed. And the only reason why um, the mics are turned off is because the three minutes is up, and that is a um, that is an observance that we have followed. And everybody is welcome to participate um, uh, in our process. So let's go to. Can we call back? 
Commissioner Romano. No, we, ha we haven't voted on. Oh, that's right. Um, we have to vote. A roll call, please. Okay. Motion is made and seconded. Unanimous. And can we? Okay, motion is made. Okay, Commissioner Finlip. Can we do Aye. unanimous consent? Yeah. Okay, unanimous. Unanimous. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ford. Okay, agenda item number 14, discussion and possible action on items for future meetings. No. Okay. Let's go to public comment. Madam Chair, we have one caller in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome caller. Your three minutes begins now. My name is Ellen Lee Zhao. I spoke earlier to you today. I will shut off and speak the truth about your one wall over government within the government. I raised my hand and I was not called to item 11 when my name is in item 11. That is exactly what corruption means. I am here to ask you for future meetings, all public officials, city leaders to repent, come back to God's righteousness under the nation. Our nation is found by godly leaders who believe in the Bible. All the meetings in most conservative areas, people start a meeting with pledge allegiance to the United States flag, but not in San Francisco. I'm asking you to evaluate our failing city policies in all departments, work a so society problems uh, to solve the dying homeless, out of control crimes, suffering business, and stop companies leaving San Francisco. I've reported to you the Ethic Commission Department and many department heads about discrimination against non-Democrats, President Trump supporters, against conservatives, against God-loving people, such as Christians and Catholics, against Republican values. I was not allowed to join candidate debate when I run for my mayor in 2018 and 2019. I report reports to you I submit so much corruption report to at the Commission none of you addressed it I love God I love San Francisco I love all of you I speak the truth to you about solutions to end government corruption where's my freedom of speech when you shut me off when you are not allowed to allow me to speak during at the Commission public hearing today I'm asking you again at the commissioners to work with leaders to be de de develop policies to reassess your failing projects, programs, policies to help San Francisco to come back to the United States Constitution rights. All San Franciscans deserve the right to happiness, safety, free speech. May God bless San Francisco. Return to God, return to righteousness, return to Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. And thank you for your time. Okay. Madam Chair, there's no further callers in the queue. Okay, public comment to number 14 is closed. Agenda item number 15, additional opportunity for public comment on matters not appearing on the agenda pursuant to Ethics Commission Bylaws, Act Article 7, Section 2. What was the question? This is the last agenda item, additional comment on anything that's not related on the agenda. Didn't we just do that? 
No, I thought we did the possible action. That it is hmm. for future meetings. I think we'll not have this one, but it's on the agenda. Yeah. It's on the. It, it's required in the bylaws that we yes. have this this second general public comment opportunity. Okay. I can I move to amend the bylaws? No. no. Okay. So I have to agendize to. Okay. No, so let's let's check on the public comment. Madam Chair, we have one caller. Wait, hold on. I want to move to agendize. I think that you don't do my motion. Okay. The chair just puts it on the agenda. Okay, or we put it's, that it's on the, the agenda. I already read the agenda. We have to listen to public comment, and then you can agendize. Okay. We have one caller in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. My name is Ellen Lee Zhao. That is E-L-L-E-N-L-E-E-Z-H-O-U. I worked for San Francisco government as a public health worker. I represent government employees. We have 37,000 government employees. Our public health has more than 11,000 government employees. I was one of the many people who are not vaccinated, fired by the city. The city fired more than 2,000 people force many people to leave their job for more than 3,000 people. Our government, the Ethic Commission, is part of the government, create the laws, codes, and regulations to stop government corruption. Yet, your commissioners and the staff who work with Ethic Commissions, you create the law, but you don't follow the law. I reported to you how the elected officials, the mayors, board of supervisors, the city leaders, health leaders lie to the public about pandemic 2019 by forcing the public to accept a poisonous vaccinated vaccine. Now we see more and more people are dying, yet you're not willing to hear the truth. Now we have a lot of people are sick and dying from cancer. We got young people die. We got uh, not yet to be dead on their scale. That is unexpected death. It's called die suddenly. The codes and regulation for pay employees and commissions like you who work for the government, but the electoral officials, they are not following the codes and regulations that they created. Do you understand we the people pay you in your seat whether you're willing to accept the commissioner job or not, but you are sitting there representing people. There's only four of you voted to represent the entire city. That is a laughter matter. That is a lie that you're running the government. Because the people oppose your government, you shut people off, do not allow people to speak, and people reported to you, what do you do? You go after the people who reported to you. Shame on your people. However, at the same time, I do appreciate your time for volunteering some of your time to hear my speech today, my statement today. I am against government corruption. I told you the truth about the pandemic. The vaccination was already produced in 2018. It was. Your three minutes has expired. Madam Chair, we have an additional caller in the queue. Please stand by. You need to, it needs to be agendized. Need and voted on. 
Madam Chair. Hello, and um, oh, hold on, thank sir. you very much for. Hold on, sir. Your three minutes, let's start this over. Your three minutes begins now. Hello, good afternoon, and, and thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Um, I call in for two reasons. One, to actually um, commend the commissioner who recused himself. I thought that that was something that um, was quite honorable, considering um, what we have uh, experienced here with some of the things going on in, in news uh, with Supreme Court justices. So um, I, I think that that shows leadership from the commissioner who did that, number one, and then number two, um, I do want to say that it is important that transparency be the order of the day at the Ethics Commission. Obviously, you have been in session, in a closed session for three hours or so. Um, it is important, even with that being said about the closed session, that transparency continue to be at uh, the very heart of what the Ethics Commission does here in the city. And again, I guess in the spirit, again, of repeating what I just said briefly, um, the commissioner who recused himself, I, I do think that that's, that's an example of what transparency can be and is. So I do want to thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. Uh, it's important for us uh, as citizens of, of uh, this city to be involved in all of the local affairs and to know who your local elected officials are and to engage with them and build relationships with them and to vote in every election, every local election especially. So thank you very much indeed for, for the time. Thank you. Thank you. Madam Chair, there's no further callers in the queue. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Last item, adjournment, no discussion. Thank you, everyone, and happy weekend. Thank you.